Welcome to Descriptive. Uh, I'm Khalil and I'm here with Henning. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, so today we're having Jafar Hussein as a guest. Um, we just um, finished the interview and uh, we're going to just want to talk about why we invited him. So uh, for my part, it was basically kind of a a big Uh, thing to invite him because I'm, I've been watching a lot of his, uh, videos where he teaches reactive extensions and observables and, uh, we're using them at work. And, um, I was very impressed by, by his kind of, um, ability to explain and, uh, to, um, yeah, just to, yeah, just to explain what those are and, and the, and kind of make, make it sort of easy. Cause I don't think it is easy if you have not thought in this kind of way, in this kind of manner that you have to think in as um, when you use observables and reactive functional programming. Um, yeah, he does a really great job explaining it and packs a lot of information uh, in, a, in a short time. So, so I was very impressed by that. And um, so it was just uh, like on my short list, you know, hey, maybe we should ask if he can, uh, if, if he would come on descriptive. And I think... Uh, was it you you ended up asking him right yeah i pinged him on uh, twitter to see if he would come on and um he replied really quickly and said yes and um my interest in him um you know i'm i'm more uh, not so in depth in in javascript yet um my interest still um is a lot in apis so his falcor um project was really really interesting to me and The way he explained that in in this interview was was really amazing, and uh, it's it's interesting that pretty much his entire career seems to have led up to building this thing. Yeah, <laughs> like Falcor is like the big culmination, exactly, of exactly. Everything that was important to him during his uh, career, which started really early on in his life. And yep. uh, his interest uh, was like he started to get interested in computers like at fourteen or whatever, and it just really um, there are so many kind of yeah he he really goes like we, we basically we ask one question he just goes through his life his origin story in one go <laughs> yeah he has a really amazing ability to explain things or to tell stories and yeah um, that's you know to to basically explain the very complex thing that is Falcor in in the terms that he did you know it's not that i understand it in in any in every technical detail but i understand i think fairly well at a high level now how it works and it's it's fascinating how they how they implemented that so that was really really interesting yeah yeah and uh yeah you you'll hear um a lot of uh, very interesting stuff so um You know what uh, his education and how he ended up uh, working at Microsoft and and then uh, and Netflix and how this all kind of came together and all his kind of major influences in computer science kind of culminate to into like this Falcor JS situation. So um, I hope uh, you have fun listening to this episode. We definitely uh, had our minds blown blown a little bit by listening <laughs> to this, and uh, yeah. That's that. Enjoyed the show. <laughs> Welcome to Descriptive. I'm Khalil. I'm here with my co-host Henning. Hello. 
And today's guest is Jofar Hussein, who is a technical lead at Netflix and the um, architect of Falcor JS and a TC39 representative. Welcome to the show, Jofar. Hey, guys. Hey, um, so uh, we always start this, um, this podcast off the same way. And uh, it's with the question, how did you get into programming and or um, into computers in general? Right. Well, you know, I could start in high school, but I think really the time in which my programming career started was, uh, you know, I'd have to peg it and I have to give most of the credit to uh, ID Software because uh, it was the first time I ever wrote any code was to try and get uh, the Doom working on my 486SX. And as a result, I had to uh, create a boot disk and a batch file. And that was really my first introduction to uh, programming was a batch file programming. And that would have been at the tender age of uh, probably 14, um, which is actually, I think, is pretty late as far as, uh, as most developers get into uh, software. Um, I got into it about 14 when I was trying to get Doom working. And uh, I also had the very good fortune of attending Turner Fenton High School. I'm Canadian, and uh, there's a great high school in Brampton, uh, which is a suburb of Toronto, Ontario. And it had tremendous resources because it was actually two high schools that it merged into one. And they had a whole series of computer labs. And at that time, something which was quite progressive, which was uh, programming classes in high school. And so I believe in grade 10, I took my first programming class. And the government of Ontario had done something somewhat unusual. They had commissioned a programming language we built um, specifically for teaching programming, and it was called Turing. And uh, it was a structured programming language. The intention was not to teach kids basic, but to teach them in a structured language that didn't have go-tos. Uh, I hadn't had much exposure to go-tos through batch programming because I'd only sort of done the minimal stuff it took to, to get Doom up and running. And then I, I, uh, I spent a lot, a lot more time shooting monsters than I did programming at that time. Uh, <laughs> so I never really got experience with go-to. And, uh, you know, I think that helped. Um, it was an odd little language. Um, and... Uh, Myself and a, a few members of the class sort of got together and we started writing some libraries for that language, uh, I guess because it was the, uh, the path of least resistance. We probably should have just transitioned into something more useful like C, but that's, that's what we did. And, and we were able to build some interesting little games. I wrote a rudimentary 3D engine. And um, I think the, you know, for me, it really, it just, you know, began at Hello World. I was fortunate enough to understand what I wanted to do with my life pretty pretty close to that first Hello World. Um, it was pretty magical, frankly, working with computers. And, uh, um, you know, it was this notion of tinkering with the machine and understanding what went on into it. And I think part of, you know, my the enjoyment I had with playing video games contributed to my interest of what was really going on under the hood. How are people creating such fun and immersive experiences, um, you know, on top of the machine? And this time we were, you know, pretty close to the metal back then. Uh, and so it was interesting to... To do, and that's really what piqued my interest. Um, from that point on, I focused pretty pretty exclusively on software, uh, somewhat to the detriment of my other studies. Uh, but I, I, uh, and then at, when I graduated high school, I, I went on to college, uh, which was Sheridan College, which was um, in Canada. It's important to understand that there are really sort of two two educational tracks. Um, at the time, it was the middle of the dot com boom, and I was very excited to get into the industry and start 
you know, coding and frankly making a lot of money. And um, so I, in Canada, you have college and you have university. And here in the United States, when you say the word college, often you're talking about what in Canada is considered university, which is, um, you know, going in for a bachelor's and potentially a three-year degree. And then maybe after that, a master's. Uh, whereas college in, in Canada is more about um, you know, hands-on, uh, often if you know exactly what you want to do. Uh, I actually got technically what's considered a diploma from Sheridan College, and that allowed me to get right into the industry. And uh, I started out coding, uh, kind of jumped right into the middle of the browser wars. So I was one of the browser warriors uh, coding what at, at the time, you know, were, were called dynamic web applications, uh, DHTML applications. Uh, and uh, it was in the middle of perhaps the most divergent possible browser landscape, which was Netscape 4 and IE4. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a really, you know, it was I, and a lot of developers were really kind of struggling to take advantage of all this fantastic new functionality uh, being afforded to us by cutting-edge browsers, and that was really transforming and giving us a little hint of what the web could be, you know, no, now over ten years ago, and um, trying also in vain to make a website that worked for both browsers. And um, you know, it was a very exciting time, and I was very fortunate because I was on a co-op. I, I was in a co-op program, and I was uh, working for an insurance company. But I had a great boss who I think recognized that I I was genuinely interested in this stuff, and and he gave me an interesting assignment, which we both, interestingly enough, took with quite a bit of um, well, it was it was resignment, which was we wanted to build an extended upscale version of the website. And that we only would support with, and at the time we had to support all the way back to IE3 and Netscape 3, but we wanted to build an extended enhanced version of the website for those visiting the, the, the website with newer browsers. And so I, this is my first real experience with JavaScript. Uh, I was doing a lot of JavaScript back then. And, uh, but of course, you know, like most developers 10 years ago, I was using JavaScript, but I didn't really understand it. I was using it, uh, trying to find ways of taking the patterns I already knew from languages uh, that were object-oriented and express them, you know, classically object-oriented and express them in JavaScript with some success. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I was really an eye-opener as to how incredibly powerful IE4 had become at that time. I think uh, it's important for developers who are around nowadays and maybe spend a lot of time cursing IE that they think back and understand that uh, Microsoft was actually responsible for pushing the web forward tremendously with IE4 and 5, um, mm -hmm. basically by opening up the, the DOM for runtime manipulation, it allowed for some truly exciting things to be done. And my first assignment was to make sort of a Windows 95-inspired sliding menu bar, um, and, uh, and I did that with, uh, with great aplomb. Uh, but it does, you know, was one of the interesting experiences of my programming career was sitting down with my manager and saying, you know what, I can't make this work on Netscape. Uh, and he took a good look at it and said, yes, indeed, we can't make this work on Netscape. And par partly it was that Netscape didn't have um, as much functionality at that time in IE. And partly it was that the functionality that was there was extremely buggy. This was a dark time in Netscape's history. Uh, the version 4 was, that you know, they had like version 4.04 and 4.01 and 4.02 and 4.03. And they just kept having these rolling uh, releases trying to sort of fix these bugs. And at some point, we looked at each other with resignment and said, you know what, we're just going to have to enable this for IE. So this is one of my my first experiences with, you know, uh, trying and failing to make a website that worked across browsers. And um, when I finally graduated, most of my time spent in school and um, college was very directed towards computing. It was mostly software, very little hardware. Uh, and that's where I was exposed to Java. And um, 
uh, object-oriented programming in general is something I learned in college uh, in C++ and Java. And um, I thought Java was great. Uh, I, I thought it was a, a really interesting idea. And I spent a good amount of time trying to conceptualize problems and, and think of what the, the, the correct way to solve them in an object-oriented architecture was. Uh, you know, I, I would constantly think about what's the object-oriented way um, try to, to try to be as dogmatic as possible. Not necessarily because I thought that that was a good idea, although partially my, at that naive time in my, in my development, I thought that you know, that's, that's probably what we should do. We should all just turn the whole world into objects. And, and that was really the key to, uh, to programming enlightenment. So I spent a lot of time taking a look at the individual problems I had and saying, what is the object-oriented approach? In a very re- in all, with an almost religious fervor. Um, and at the time, you know, that's, that's understandable. You know, we were sort of lurching away from procedural programming as it had been done with C. Uh, and we were, tra- we were sort of exploring what was, you know, newish. Um, certainly, object-oriented programming had been a while by the time I was, I, you know, but before I learned it. But the industry was really starting to take it up. I think the entire industry as a whole was really trying to understand object-oriented programming, understand what it was good for and where it could be applied. And... Typically, when you're adopting new technology, you overreact, you overadopt, right? Um, and because that really, that's the only way to discover the limits of your technology. It's to push at the edges of it and fail. And that's what I did a lot of with object-oriented programming. I built some very, very what I consider to be beautiful programs and with with object with objects and uh, network programs and and simple UI programs. But really. It was less. I was less interested, in, and really to this day, it's true that I was less interested in what I was doing and the specific problem that I was given, and how rather than how I would solve that problem. I wanted programming to be elegant and beautiful, and frankly, I could take that with a card game, or I could take it with a, a large distributed system. That was really what gave me satisfaction when programming. It was less about the problem I was solving, and more about solving it in the most elegant and succinct way. So did the and, did the programs yeah, uh, suffer a little bit um, through that, like the like user experience, for, for instance, or, or was that was that kind of also considered? Uh, I would say it definitely suffered. <laughs> okay. I would say that there were areas where, because in the end, I mean, user interfaces are you know, especially as you get into UI programming, there there this compromise between what might be an elegant design and what human beings might expect, which is actually very often not elegant or at least uh, not necessarily predictable to uh, a software developer. Uh, it's one of the interesting aspects of my career that wherever possible, I've tried to develop for software developers rather than end users. I've tried to make libraries and components for software developers because the truth is I understand, or at least I think I understand software <laughs> developers. And frankly, I, I've never had an extremely good appreciation of what end users want. And uh, despite the fact that in most of my career I've been in UI programming, uh, and that's an area that I've certainly gotten better at, um, but that wasn't an area that came naturally to me. I wanted to build components for other developers to use. I wanted to build abstractions for other developers to sort of build on top of. Uh, and as a result, I didn't necessarily make the most elegant user interfaces. T- typically, my user interfaces tended to uh, look very geometric and would sort of factor... They'd be, they'd be driven by the architecture I built for expressing the game rather than starting at the top and saying, look, what is a user, what's the interaction model for this software? And that's stuff that I only learned much later in my career. Granted, I'm still in college at this point. Mm-hmm. So I was very much aspiring to the beautiful code uh, and less the beautiful program. And so I think right. that's, a, that's an insight 
that's uh, that you've hit on there that's important because often one trades, you know, you often you make a trade off. Right. And so I continued through college, um, really enjoying most of the work that I was doing, whether it was in C++ or, or Java, and those were the two dominant languages that I was working in, um, and mostly striving, as I said earlier, for the, to understand object-oriented programming, because um, I'd started with procedural programming and Turing. And then uh, when I graduated, I went to work at a small startup in London, Ontario, and it was effectively making, uh, it, was a, it was an idea like a lot of startups and a lot, like a lot of um, failed projects. Um, so often in the software industry, you have great ideas that are ahead of their time. And I think at this time, we were trying to do something very ambitious, which was create document sharing online. And you know, nowadays, we have Google Docs. And it was really trying to approximate doing something like Google Docs, or at least something very proto-Google Docs, uh, back at a time where the technology was not even remotely up to that. Um, and so at the same time, you know, when you make a moonshot like that, you, you often miss by a wide margin, but you learn a lot in the process. And uh, once again, I was in the trenches of the browser wars. We were trying to make this work uh, both, once again, for Netscape 4 and IE5 at the time, IE5 and 4. And that Netscape was the culprit again, uh, which made this very, very difficult. And I, I know a lot of web developers who have been around a long time may remember that pain of trying to make saw you know your web page work in multiple browsers to some degree of course we still have this pain uh but it's hard to imagine just how much better it's gotten than those dark days uh when you know browsers really they weren't terribly involved in standards uh and really browser vendors were competing to see whatever proprietary features they could get in to get the most market share uh, and web developers were sort of caught in the crossfire there mm-hmm. um and so that startup you know, uh, failed and I lost my job and, and I was rather depressed about it because I tremendously enjoyed my job. Um, I didn't, I didn't necessarily felt feeling terribly enthusiastic about the idea of document sharing, but it was more about, uh, getting to write code, uh, both server and client code. And that was my first opportunity to write on the server side. And interestingly enough, I wrote JavaScript on the server side, and this is a very, very long time ago in ASP, long before Node.js was the rage. Uh, one of the, the my, I think my larger accomplishments there was to point out to my managers that um, ASP could easily be configured to use JavaScript on the server side instead of the default language, which was Visual Basic. And we wow. began to take advantage of that. Um, most people, I think, completely missed that, and they wrote Visual Basic on the server side. But why? Um, why, why did you write JavaScript on the server? How did you make that decision? Well, there was only two options if you were using ASP. And so that technology choice had been made for me. Not that I necessarily would have picked something different. I think ASP was a, a pretty decent server, uh, you know, server language back then, server framework back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the reason I chose JavaScript was, well, frankly, uh, Visual Basic was not a better language than JavaScript. Uh, okay. Visual Basic uh, script was a good deal worse than JavaScript, a good deal less flexible language. But perhaps the most important thing was, as we were, uh, we, we were building enhanced features for more advanced browsers, we found often that we would end up writing code in the server side that was identical to code that we'd later write on the client side, because we could, basically, as browsers became more advanced, we could run more and more of the website in the browser rather than on the server, and it was absolutely advantageous to do that uh, for you know just not just for, well really for efficiency and, and better user experience. And so we found ourselves porting code from Visual Basic script to JavaScript, and then you know we had the the realization that we should just write in JavaScript everywhere, and then it becomes trivial to transfer code <laughs> from the server this to the client. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, these these things tend to the software industry. I mean, we we tend to. 
you know, we tend to repeat ourselves. And, and sometimes people point that out and, uh, in, a, in a derogatory way, right? That you know, people will say, well, we just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. And of course, it's absolutely true. We just do it better. And that's okay. Um, you know, back then, I, I'm, I'm proud to say I was one of the you know, people doing JavaScript on the server side before the vast majority of developers out there. Uh, and I certainly recognize the benefits of uh, isomorphic JavaScript or universal JavaScript, uh, although it had neither of those names back then. Um, and it, moreover, I, I frankly, I, I learned to love JavaScript. And that's a bit of an odd thing. I think a lot of people, um, you know, JavaScript is a language they use but don't necessarily love, especially if they come from other languages. And JavaScript was a language that I loved. Uh, as I became more and more familiar with it and began to learn its dynamic aspects, I remember vividly having excitable, excited conversations with my developer friend on the phone. I was working remotely and we were friends from college. And I would call him up and tell him about exactly what I could do in JavaScript. And half of it was a bad idea. <laughs> half of it was a terrible idea. Stuff you, you probably shouldn't do in the first place. But what I was doing was I was really ex examining, pushing at the boundaries of what this new and odd language could do. And I was finding some very surprising things. And I discovered metaprogramming, for example, on my own. I hadn't learned about Java reflection in uh, college, and it wasn't metaprogramming was something that wasn't focused on at all. And I noticed that I could use things like eval, um, or I could begin to build systems rather than inside out is one way of putting it. I could build, begin to build systems that rather than code using data um, and or code dri code driving the data, data driving the code. So in other words, I would um, sprinkle little metadata around. Uh, my system and, and uh, into my data structures, and then I would build more generic code that would read that metadata, which is very similar to what you would do with reflection, attaching annotations in Java or uh, attributes, if you will, in C Sharp. Um, but it was a good deal more powerful because, of course, you could attach properties to any object in JavaScript. And this was something that I found very interesting before I fully understood, because I hadn't gotten a more classical education in computer science, at least not until later. Um, as a matter of fact, once I lost my job at that startup, I did go back to university because I, I really felt, well, right now, you know, the, the industry is not in a great place. There weren't a lot of jobs to go around. And I thought, what a great time to go back and firm up my education. So I did end up going to university. And... Uh, only for a year, though, they were able to take um, the, the classes that I took in college and contribute them to, to my degree. Um, and so I got a, a, a bachelor's, and a, a lot of those skills and a lot of the things I learned about JavaScript kind of stayed with me, even though I wasn't really taught um, many of those things in college. When I went back into college, it was very much more traditional at the time. Uh, .NET had become... Uh, .NET was just sort of coming out, and I got a co-op job in university. I was afforded the opportunity to do a co-op in university where I got to use .NET, and I, I, uh, I absolutely loved .NET. I thought it was a much better framework than Java back then. Uh, and I would kind of almost forgot about JavaScript. I didn't really have a lot of reason to use it in college. Um, I, I remember trying to write a couple of applications in, in a web page. I remember being very excited about the immediacy and how easily deployed, right? Building an application in JavaScript and I can just make it available anywhere. Um, it was my first experience with the, the read about uh, the REPL, right? The re um, and that, that was a, a, an experience that I didn't have when I was working in .NET or when I was working in Java or when I was working in C++. And so although I sort of moved away from JavaScript, I never really forgot about those abilities, the metaprogramming abilities, the easy, the easy of deployment, and the, the ability to very quickly take ideas from concept to reality and just sort of hit F5 and then see the results. And I missed that. But 
nonetheless, I was I was doing what I was doing, which was focusing on .NET pretty intently and uh, and Java, and so I sort of threw myself back headlong um, into thinking about object oriented programming abstractions and how I could build any system in the canonical object oriented way, um, and you know even took advantage eventually in .NET of some of the metaprogramming facilities, and I remember hearkening back to what was available to me in JavaScript and always sort of missing it, thinking it was this odd, somewhat dirty language, you know, where you could just stick properties on any object, and thinking that was powerful, but at the same time, sort of resigning myself to the idea that well, you know, it must not be safe. Right, and then certainly that's what what I'd heard time and time again that there was just no way to do that properly. And well, if you were going to build programs, you were going to use a real language like Java or C sharp or C plus plus. And so, um, partly to be employable, and partly just because it was what I was sort of told was the right thing, I, I threw myself headlong into .NET, and uh, and I graduated a year later, and uh, I went to work for a um, marketing company. Um, Although first, actually, I, I should mention I work for the Canadian Cancer Society, which is a, a very large uh, charity, the largest charity at least when I was working there in Canada. And uh, that was actually a really interesting experience for me, partly because um, I think working not in a corporate environment but in a charity environment, which tends to be very bureaucratic, it was I learned a lot of organiz- a lot of, I learned a lot of different ways to navigate an organization. Uh, that is fundamentally bureaucratic as opposed to corporate. And uh, a lot of developers out there will never have to deal with this. But it's, uh, it's certainly important to, un- I mean, it really goes to the core part of being a successful developer is really understanding the nature of the organization you're working within. Um, and I didn't really understand it very well. Um, and I think a lot of developers love code. They love to get into code. And I think it's important that developers understand that in order to maximize your impact, you really need to learn about the organization you're working in, and yes, involve you know who decision makers are and who influencers are. And it, I think I think back on my tenure uh, and that charity as, as basically a failure because uh, I failed to understand what motivated that motivated people to do things within the context of a charity. And I was really approaching it like a corporation. And I, the fundamental difference in bureaucratic organizations is that they are change averse. Uh, and very often they have a different set of incentives. And so coming in there and saying, look, I can build you a system that's going to save you X million dollars over the next five years. In this specific instance, we were trying to figure out how to optimize our ride-sharing program so that we could drive people to chemotherapy treatments. Uh, And the charity had wisely calculated that in the next five to 10 to 15 years, those costs were going to skyrocket with the aging population. And I was given the task of building a system that could optimize trip routes. And even if that meant, you know, buying software externally or having putting out an RFP to customize software. Um, and that effort effectively failed, not because we couldn't make the technology work. It failed because uh, of the incentive structure, which is that all the, the there's two things that were working against us. One is we, I, volunteers did the ride sharing. And many of those volunteers didn't really want to go and pick up three people and make a single trip for three people. So that was a serious issue. And the other issue is that the, and this is the more, I think the more significant issue, is that the system would have cost a lot of money to set up. It would have paid for itself very handily in two to three years and then more than paid for itself in the next 10 or 15. But the issue is that many charities show pie charts, which show how much of their costs go to administrative costs. And if even in one year, that there's a large percentage of cost that goes to administrative uh, instead of care, 
then uh, donors take a look at that, and they don't tend to look at that very favorably. They look at that pie chart when they develop, when they give dollars, and they they want to know that dollars go to care. And you know, there's nobody who did anything wrong in that particular environment. That was just the nature of charity for that reason and others. Just were you sure. able to to see that while you were still in that, or is that a realization you came to later? Well, that's something that came out that no one ever told me directly was an influencer, and I had to figure it out. I had to figure it out uh, in meetings. Um, no one would ever say things. It was, in general, it was not a very confrontational organization. No one would say things directly. Um, you had to sort of figure them out indirectly. Um, and that's because bureaucratic organizations often they work on a lot more consultation. You have to bring people on board, not just external people who are volunteers, but you know, very often within bureaucracies you have individual fiefdoms and it's about getting people on board, so to speak, instead of this top-down very hierarchical corporate structure. And so it was sometimes difficult to get a straight answer. And it's not as though people were being dishonest. They were just working within, or, or less than up front, they were working within the system with the incentives that they had. And I, frankly, I was too young to understand these things. I was too inexperienced. I was very good. I, you know, I was, I, you give me a software pro, pro problem, I could solve it. I felt confident that I could. But at that point, I had the very valuable experience of being in over my head. Uh, and being forced to understand that this problem required more than just software. It required really understanding the organization. Uh, and if any, if anything, I had that old adage of being promoted to my level of incompetence because the first six months, I actually had a, a software problem, which was building a, uh, a much more traditional software problem, which was build software to support a call center that was uh, helping people. It was a hotline for smokers, so for smoking cessation. So if you ever wanted to drag, you could call up the hotline, and they would talk you off the ledge, so to speak, and <laughs> keep you from smoking. And uh, and there was a whole script, and I built some software for them. And uh, in, in, at the time, we were porting that from Visual Basic to VisualBasic.net. Uh, and so I got a lot of experience with, uh, I took my experience with .NET and I applied it using Visual Basic .NET to do that. And that, that project went swimmingly. It went really, really well. And, uh, and they had such a high opinion of me that they pro promoted me to what was partly a technical and partly sort of a PM role and a role that I was utterly unqualified for. And so it was an abject failure. And, uh, and if anybody from the Canadian Cancer Society is out there listening, I, I, I apologize. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's, that's part of the, the learning experience. Um, and so, you know, after that, I went to work for uh, General Electric, which was, uh, at the time, actually, it was a small Canadian company that built water filters, and it was bought by General Electric. And General Electric was in the process of running around and buying water, filtra water filtration companies. Uh, keep in mind, at this point in my career, I'm still very focused on line of business systems, building internal apps for companies. And I'm still, you know, I don't really have, even after my university experience, which was still quite practical, not as much theoretical, um, because it was only a year long. Uh, I still had very, you know, my, the, the breadth of, of computer science I've been exposed to, there wasn't a lot of breadth. It was mostly around C, C++, Java, and .NET. And all of these technologies, of course, are tremendously similar to each other. I'd never been exposed at this point in my career to functional programming or uh, declarative programming languages like Prolog. Uh, not all of this stuff was completely alien to me. And worse, I, I thought that I was fantastic. I mean, this is the, this is the challenge. I think it's the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Effectively, I was ignorant and had an outsized opinion of myself in terms of what I could do. And it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was that I could actually, if I'd known these things, and if I un understood different 
uh, development paradigms, I could have done a much better job. I would have applied these paradigms selectively where they made sense rather than just trying to use an object-oriented hammer on everything. Uh, and at the time, I just didn't have this context. And so when I went to work for GE, by that time, though, I had start to or- started to organically figure out some of these things, um, specifically how to leverage metaprogramming to build systems. And in .NET, that meant things like reflection. Um, but increasingly, I was, I was reaching for that picking that out of my tool belt, metaprogramming, to solve problems. Um, but once again, GE was this interesting, very different organization. Now, it was a very top-down, hierarchical organization. And so, in general, I felt more comfortable there. In general, if you built, if you did a better job, uh, you got ahead. And, and that was, and there wasn't necessarily a lot of complex complexity in the organization to navigate, although there did turn out to be some. Um, one of the, 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 the tasks we were given was to, to build a lot of internal apps, uh, just, you know, at the time using ASP and AS, eventually ASP.net. Um, and, you know, that was relatively straightforward. Frankly, at this point in my career, this was sort of basic crud stuff, taking stuff out of a database, displaying it on screen, and then setting it back and changing it. But I never let the simplicity of the problem keep me from trying to strive to do better. I was able to always learn and become better no matter what problem I was given because of that relentless focus on picking the most elegant solution for any problem. There's still a surprising amount of complexity, some of which is incidental, in a simple CRUD app where you're taking data out of a database and displaying it. In fact, CRUD apps happen to have a tremendous amount of incidental complexity. Very often, you see that at the time anyway, um, 50% of the code was dedicated simply to taking data out of the database and turning it into the format for which you would display it on screen. It was basically plumbing code. And that I found absolute, that offended my sensibilities tremendously. (laughs) Even though I didn't really have the right amount of knowledge, right? I didn't have enough knowledge. I had the right set of values. And that's really what made, that's really one of the reasons why I was able to become a good programmer. At the time I wasn't a good programmer, but having the right set of values, that having the right values around simplicity, orthogonality, before I even knew how to put names on these things, um, that's what led me to relentlessly try and improve things, and in that process, discover organically concepts that I probably could have been taught much more quickly with a higher, with a uh, with a more traditional computer science application, uh, uh, with a more traditional computer science education. And so, my perhaps the most significant project I worked on in GE was a costing system for water treatment programs. Um, so, uh, you know, General Electric would build water treatment systems, and the engineers had built. Uh, a incredibly sophisticated system, which was basically a collection of Excel spreadsheets for costing. Uh, if you've worked in corporate America for any length of time, you realize that there's a huge amount of code out there in corporate America that's running inside of Microsoft Office in one form yep. or another, very <laughs> often inside of Excel. And I was becoming aware of you know, how important, what an important building block Microsoft Office was in the modern corporation and how a tremendous amount of programming and how, how Office was really, at the time, magnificently scriptable. I mean, it was really Office is something that I quite admire as a project because it's one thing to build an amazing word processor and it's another entirely to build a, uh, uh, a, a platform on which you can build amazing programs. And, and that's really what Office had become at that time. It had become truly an amazing platform for software development for solving business problems. And so I got into office scripting, um, understanding Excel and, and access and, uh, you know, that, that platform. And I was very impressed, frankly, by what Microsoft had put together with office. Um, and the, what I, my task, my rather unenviable task was to take 
this huge collection of spreadsheets and turn it into a .NET program that would allow us to store that data. And the reason, the reason behind this, of course, is that Excel is both data storage and data processing locked up into one. And this is both its greatest strength and greatest weakness. Because, of course, you want to be able to store data about previous, you know, previous systems in a database so that you can query that data. Um, but putting, very often, coupling in computer science can be easier. It can be easier. It doesn't, and I'm going to use the word simple and easy differently here. Um, uh, Rich Hickey, who's one of the developers I most admire, has, has a great talk uh, called Simple Made Easy. Uh, about those two terms and how developers tend to use them interchangeably when they really mean very different things. And so I'm going to come back to that in a second. And I'm going to say easy in the sense that it's easy for these engineers to figure out. Excel is really a magnificent programming language. It's probably the first functional programming language that I ever learned without even knowing that I was learning a functional programming language. And, uh, and they had built a truly sophisticated costing system out of Excel. And the company wanted to be able to mine that data. And so they concluded, we will we'll have to take the data storage out of Excel, put it into a database. Let's make this thing mature. The, the concept, the idea here was that we were going to take this ragtag bunch of Excel spreadsheets and we were going to take our, our serious computer science acumen and we were going to build a system that was much better than this silly collection of spreadsheets. And this is perhaps another failure in my, uh, in my programming career, which was I built a system which I thought was great. And uh, it, it, it absolutely, it even included the ability to do um, rudimentary scripting um, by taking advantage of the, the ability to run VBScript inside of modern .NET programs. Uh, it's stored to SQL Server, uh, and it didn't get adopted. And it didn't get adopted because the engineers had built something more flexible in Excel. What they built was unquestionably better than what I built. Um, it just didn't have the data storage side. And the engineers collectively concluded that they didn't need this thing. They didn't really care as much about the company's long-term desire to be able to mine this data. They pretty much collectively said, nope. And, and you know, that was a, another <laughs> learning experience in my career, which is that I'd, I'd done all the things I was told to do from the perspective of the software, and I'd even tried as best I could to make it script something that the developers wanted. But in the end, Excel was such a great experience from a scriptability perspective. It was this fantastic visual programming language. I just couldn't compete. I couldn't build something better than Excel out of .NET at the time, uh, certainly within the, the, period, the schedule I was given. And um, the, the, the organizationally, I had, some, in addition to you know, having, trying to compete with a program that was effectively better on the data processing side, right? even though I was better on the data storage side, the organization just collectively said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and because, you know, it's a corporate organization, different people have different, uh, different goals, and some are long-term and some are short-term. In the end, it was decided not to pursue it. And so, you know, I, I, it was great for me because I actually had two learning experiences. One, I built a program, perhaps one of the first programs I was truly proud of. It was metadata-driven. The idea was that um, people would be able to enter in information about a part for a water treatment system, and then they would basically tag it with metadata, and it would sort of instantly become available in the system because the system used reflection to discover data. Uh, and that was a, a period of my, of my life where I really began to understand the power of metaprogramming. Uh, and, you know, safe and sanctioned metaprogramming, not that dirty JavaScript stick a property on everything, right? The safe, correct way, so I thought, of doing metaprogramming. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, wow, you know, there's really, there's really something here. This is really exciting stuff. 
uh, at the same time, once again, felled by sort of my inability to understand or navigate the organization. That one I won't completely blame on myself. I think that project was doomed from the start. But um, certainly I didn't know how to communicate with engineers about the benefits. I probably could have done a better job selling it. But in the end, I think their wisdom was right. I think they, were, they made the right choice. Um, you know, those engineers were competent programmers with this language and it was working for them. And so who the hell was I, frankly, to try and take that tool away from them? When you say uh, um, .NET, does that mean um, Visual Basic and .NET at that time? Or? At the time, it was VB.NET. Uh, yeah. Frankly, I was equally um, proficient in both C Sharp and VB.NET. I think it's important to understand that .NET, although it was billed as a sort of a you know a, a a virtual machine that could target multiple languages, I think it's more realistic that .NET was built as a virtual machine that could target any language, providing that language was either C Sharp or VB.NET. Uh, <laughs> both of those languages are Frankly, you know the, the similarities are they are far more similar than they are different. Uh, you know, if, I always tell programmers to learn multiple programming languages, and that definitely doesn't mean C Sharp and VB.NET. The reason is you, you want to learn programming languages that approach problems very, very differently. And C Sharp and VB.NET just had different window dressing over the same fundamental programming language. Um, it wasn't until later with F Sharp that .NET actually got a language that was you know slightly more interesting. Uh, and it turns out that you know, that although they put in some features into the into the the IL the, um, the at the instruction level, that theoretically could be used with different vastly different types of languages like uh, tail you know tail recursion for tail calls for example. It turns out that as soon as they built the language that tried to use it, it, it turns out that all those features were broken because of course, sure enough, code that's never been tested is broken, right? And so um, you know, I, I think .NET's reputation is a multi multi-programming language runtime is, was, wasn't really uh, borne out to be true until later when they really started to focus on making F-sharp a, a first-class language, and, and I think they made some changes. I believe they made some changes to the virtual uh, machine, to the, to, the, uh, to the IL, to, support, to better support F-sharp. Um, so that's essentially what it was, VB.net, but you know, frankly, potato, potato, you could have used C-sharp. Right, uh, yeah. That's not really an interesting decision at that point. It was just yeah. that the, the organization had previously used Visual Basic, and so they found VB.net to be an interesting, to, to, be a better, uh, to be a better fit. Although there is a lesson in that, which is that Microsoft dedicated, I mean, it's probably millions and millions of dollars to maintaining these two programming languages that were pretty much exactly the same. At first, they maintained sort of this idea that they were somehow different, and then eventually completely gave up on that and did what they did, what they consider co-evolution, which is every feature that made its way into one language made its way into the other. Um, but it does speak to something that I found to be true, and it was probably a smart business move, even though it's, at, at, you know, from the outset, from, from far away, it might seem like that's just a waste, right? Semicolons or no semicolons, who cares? But it does speak to just how tremendously important programming language and how personal programming languages are to developers. I don't think a lot of developers think of programming languages as a tool, as yet another tool in their tool belt. They think of their tools as tools or their, the libraries as tools, but they don't consider a programming language to be part of that stack. They, I think there's a lot of developers that consider programming language to be this special other thing. Uh, and I think that's a somewhat unhealthy attitude, uh, yeah. but I have ex experienced it myself in computing again and again. When you start to try and threaten to take away programmers' programming language, or try to not so much threaten, but but talk to them about the potential of maybe using a different programming language, um, there's a lot of developers that react very strongly to that. And I've learned that I was never 
very religious about my programming language. Uh, maybe it was that experience in .NET and just sort of the two programming languages I've been exposed to were, were not that different from each other. And so really, at my, I, I naively thought, oh, you know, it's just different if, if syntax or different loop syntax, big deal. When, of course, the reality is very different. Uh, it was, I think, my naivete that maybe gave me the impression that ah, programming languages, I mean, you know, I can switch from one to the other. I tried to be, I tried to be a, um, someone who was proficient in, in, in multiple languages. Um, and I thought that was a valuable thing, but I didn't realize just how valuable it was until later in my career. And so that brings me to, to the, the latest failure, <laughs> which is uh, my attempt to, uh, to, to get that system adopted at GE. Um, as I said, though, it was a tremendously useful process because it taught me, it gave me a really hard problem for the first time where I really had to build it myself start to finish and I learned the value of metadata to, to take care of problems with tremendous breadth but not a lot of depth where you had a lot of different water parts that, you know, and I could have written a lot of code to handle it all, but I had to figure out how to abstract over all these parts so I could write a small amount of code to process them. I had to learn to extract from seeming chaos, the pattern, uh, and, and learning how to use metaprogramming was a very important time uh, for me in my career. And then uh, af after that, I think it was at GE for about uh, three years maybe, uh, and then I moved on to a marketing firm uh, in, um, in, uh, in Toronto called Blast Radius, uh, and they do uh, web marketing. They're a very kind of a new marketing company. And to be honest, you know, I wasn't tremendously interested in marketing. I was more interested in getting into web. Uh, I, it became at, the, at that point in my career, it was pretty clear to me that the exciting place to be was in web, web development. Uh, I, I, I recalled my original experience with web development and all of the wonderful things about it from the REPL um, to the ease of deployment and, frankly, also to JavaScript. I sort of hearkened back to working with JavaScript and the metaprogramming I did there. And I thought, you know what, I, I think I can, certainly I can do more um, in the web space, I think it's the more exciting space. And so I wanted to get back in the web space, and I had a friend who, who worked there. And it was sort of, you know, one of those jobs that you get by knowing somebody. Um, I wasn't, as I said earlier, I wasn't terribly interested in marketing. But at that point in my career, certainly, for me, it wasn't about the specific problem. It was a, an, another opportunity to sharpen my skills. I, I would find a way to do it on any problem. Really, if anything, the, I, I, I thought of myself as a knife, you know, or a hammer, and people would give me a problem, and I would try and solve that problem. But I wasn't tremendously interested in what problem I was solving. Uh, and so that at that point, though, shortly after I started working at Blast Radius, um, I became aware of the work of Eric Meyer. And um, for those of you who don't know, Eric Meyer is a – or at the time, he was uh, working at Microsoft. And uh, Eric's been involved in some very, very important uh, developments in computer science. He's been around for a long time. Um, contributed some ideas to Haskell, and at the time he was working at Microsoft and uh, was responsible for some very, very uh, exciting technology. Um, and I became aware of one of his white papers. As I mentioned earlier, early in my career, I was tremendously frustrated. I was constantly frustrated by the amount of plumbing code I had to write to build what I could conceptually understand to be basically a simple program. I mean, how hard is it to take data out of a database, show it to somebody, have, have them change it, and then put it back in? It, I was constantly frustrated by how much code it took to make these applications, which you know can be described in three sentences, actually work, whether it was from data validation. Sometimes you'd have to repeat that data validation at multiple tiers, both in the database and on the front end. It was across multiple languages. 
I had I didn't know this for certain, but I had a gut instinct that a lot of the complexity here was incidental complexity, meaning it wasn't really core to the problem. It was a, a side effect of the abstractions and the tools that we'd chosen to solve the problem with. And that creates complexity that doesn't need to be there. I didn't know that for certain, and I didn't know what the right abstractions were to solve it, but I had a very strong instinct that what, what I was doing was on some level absurd. You know, it's just, it was, there was a lot of churn. Uh, I just wasn't smart enough how to, to figure out how to do it better at that point in my career. And, you know, I, I tried to keep up because I didn't have a more classical education. I tried to supplement it by reading white papers, and I'd, I'd started to uh, begin to explore the more academic side of computer science um, out of curiosity. And a lot of things happened in the eight months that I worked for Blast Radius. It was a very short amount of time because I'd become gradually aware of really just how much I was missing out on not having a more classical education in computer science. Um, I started to become aware of functional programming, uh, partly through Eric's work, but also partly through the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, uh, which is the MIT course, which was available online. Um, that was perhaps one of the... There are, there are a few moments in your career where you have a paradigm shift, where you could begin to completely look at software in the space of, you know, almost a few days in a completely different way. And those are the, you know, the moments I really relish in my career that I look back on uh, with such fondness are those times when, you know, you sort of slap your head and you think to yourself, my God, I've been doing this for 10 years and I didn't even really fully understand what it was that I was doing. And there have been a, a few revelations um, where in my, in my career, and almost all of them happened within that eight-month period, uh, and uh, the first was, as I mentioned, a structure interpretation of computer programs. And I had known programmers who had recommended that to me, and I showed it to a few of my friends. But I, I, don't, I, I remember coming away with the sensation that, that, with the impression that they they understood what was going on, but they didn't really get how important it was. And the revelation that I'm specifically talking about here, the structure interpretation of computer programs, is, uh, is I recommend it to all developers. It's a course that's available on MIT, and it teaches Scheme, which is a which is a type of programming language called Lisp. Uh, and I took away a lot from that. Um, Lisp is an interesting language. I learned a little bit about functional programming, but perhaps the most important takeaway was the, how metaprogramming um, could be done so much more easily in Lisp than in other languages. And um, specifically the revelation that data and code are a lot like energy and matter. That specifically one is just waiting to be turned into the other. Uh, and that's a bit of an abstract statement. And in, in Lisp, it's very easy to take um, your data structures and effectively interpret them so that you can extend your programming language. It's as though I can add features to my programming language that don't already exist. Now, obviously, you can add functions to your, functions, uh, to your program, but it was almost as though you could extend your programming language's syntax. And some, pro some modern programming languages allow this, but Lisp had a very elegant way in which you could do it uh, that really blurred the difference between building your program and building your program like programming language. And it really, I found that it formalized the idea, that thing that I learned almost 10 years ago that I sort of stumbled on with JavaScript, where I could sort of enhance my data with metadata and then run programs, which were a program, which was effectively an interpreter that would interpret the metadata found on the data 
to extract commonality that couldn't be abstract, abstracted out with a simple interface or a type signature. There was really, at some level of abstraction, there are similarities between things that are, that are difficult to describe with pipe systems, that are easier to describe with a programming language. And that's really the amazing thing that I learned about Lisp. It really it put a, a, a bow on really the, the ideas about metaprogramming that I'd sort of been sussing out myself from languages like JavaScript and then from Reflection and .NET. And it showed me how metaprogramming, instead of being this other thing, could be integrated directly into a programming language and could completely transform the way in which you approach problems. And that was just an, that was a real watershed moment for me. Um, and I remember taking the zeal with which I had applied earlier to solving problems and figuring out the canonical object-oriented way of solving a problem and redirecting that zeal to try and figure out the metaprogramming way to solve that problem. Or how can I express this problem as data? And once I've expressed it as data, how can I write my own small, tiny, domain-specific programming language to solve this problem? How do I build my language up to the problem instead of breaking my problem down into the tiny pieces that my programming language can deal with? And, and that sort of was a, a watershed moment. And uh, also learning about functional programming and, and, uh, and how you could write programs without mutation. That's also another thing I learned from structure interpretation of computer programs. Um, so that, that was, while very interesting, was difficult to apply at work because, of course, I wasn't using Lisp. Now, I could take the ideas of metaprogramming and it helped me to better understand, frankly, what I was already doing. But I was somewhat limited by the fact that I was working in, frankly, .NET. I was still in a corporate environment. And there was only so much you could do. Uh, when you're working in a company which, frankly, has, you know, where so any company that doesn't have software as its primary focus, you're going to find uh, a lot of mediocre developers. And that's, you know, that's not a, it's not a, a criticism of, of anyone. That makes total sense. If software, any company where software is not a, 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 is a cost center rather than the core product, like it was in GE, that's going to, that's going to attract a different kind of developer. I, I firmly believe that People who are, and I, after that experience at GE or an experience at Blast Radius, which is a marketing company, uh, I, I, I was resolute in my desire to work for a company that saw software as its product instead of its cost center. Because you really get a fundamentally different attitude about software and a fundamentally different, it's, it's sort of like um, the company starts to think of software as, as just as important as a brick and mortar building. I mean, it, you know, someone's given a, a metaphor, I forget who, but the idea would be that, you know, if somebody broke a window in GE's office, right, we wouldn't just sit around with that window broken, right? They'd go and fix it up because they see that that building is a real investment. And sometimes software can cost as much as bricks and mortar buildings, often in the millions and millions of dollars, and it can be crucial to a business. But sometimes that same attitude doesn't translate to software. Well, we're going to leave this bug in there, or we're going to leave this, uh, this, this subsystem really poorly written, um, you know, it's 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 odd that we have this different attitude to some degree. Um, even though you know, true software is soft and is malleable, but it's still it might be relatively speaking a similar investment and similar uh, strategic importance. So I, I, I was I decided that I wanted to work for a company that saw software as its main focus, and um, I, I where I could really do some of the advanced things that I was learning about. And so as I said, there was there's a few moments in my career where I had this paradigm shift, and that was one of them. That data is code, and code is data. And then I became very familiar with the work of Eric Meyer. And Eric was really interesting because instead of, um, you know, abstract academic concepts that were interesting but not applicable to my everyday job, 
Um, and I spent a lot of time reading white papers and learning about that just because I was curious. Eric was trying to do, was trying to make my life easier. He was trying to take concepts from academia, concepts from ideas from things like, you know, languages as unapproachable as Haskell, and turn around and trying to solve that problem that I had, the CRUD problem, the CRUD problem of how do I just take data out of here and display it on screen without all of this pain? And he wrote this remarkable white paper called Circles, Triangles, and Squares. And I remember sort of clutching this paper and realizing when I got to the end of it that this guy was basically solving, describing certainly the problem that I'd been unable to articulate for most of my career, which is that when you're doing a lot of modern, a lot of certainly a lot of line of business applications, you're basically taking data from squares, i.e. database tables, and you're taking it out, you're turning it into circles, uh, i.e. objects, and then finally at some point you're converting it into triangles at the time, XML, right? Trees, tree structures. (laughs) And most of the code, most of what I was doing was was just converting between these representations. And sure enough, my pro- part of the problem wasn't that I just, you know, I was terrible. It was that my programming languages didn't have these concepts as first-class concepts within the language. They, there was no really good data structure in Java for a table. I mean, sure, you could represent it with classes. But that's not really the ideal way to define a table or a tabular data structure with a bunch of classes and a list of, of, of class instances. Um, furthermore, XML had a whole set of concepts uh, that didn't really, there was an impedance mismatch between XML and things like XPath and the way you coded in object-oriented languages. And so even though I was, you know, my, most of the time thing I was doing in my programming language I was taking data out of tables and turning them into XML after first putting them into objects and applying business logic, programming languages didn't have these concepts. And Eric asked a really simple question. He was like, well, what if we just, you know, gave first-class structures, which are a much better way of, like, structures, uh, like C-style structs, and put them into a Java, or in the case, he was talking specifically about C-sharp, but the criticism applied to both equally then. He said, well, what, what if we just put structures into C-sharp and made it really easy to define um, tabular data structures and work with tabular data structures in C-sharp? And more specifically, what if we took the query language primitives that we have for SQL, and what if we brought them into the language? What if you could run a SQL query against an in-memory data structure, right? Because C-sharp already had structures. It was more that we used set-based, uh, set-based query languages to manipulate and munge those structures. What if we just brought those into the programming languages and made them first class? And furthermore, what if we brought concepts of XML directly, like XML objects directly into the programming language as well? Well, then all of a sudden, there'd be very little friction. You could simply, with a single expression, pull data out of a database table, convert it into an object, apply business logic, and then trivially dump it into an XML document, all in sometimes in as simple as a single expression. And I remember looking at the, the sample code that he had in this hypothetical extension to C-sharp and thinking, my God, what have I spent the last five or six years doing? And, uh, and, and that's when Eric really caught my attention, and, and, I, and I, I, I had a drive within me. The drive was to go and work for Eric Meyer, or at the very least, go work for Microsoft because uh, shortly after that paper, not so shortly, maybe about, you know, up to, yeah, actually, I guess shortly after that paper, most of those ideas made their way into C-sharp. Uh, this, the, the important, very important C-sharp 3.5 release, which had this notion of link, which was la- language integrated query. And most of the ideas came directly, not all, but most of the ideas came directly from Eric's white paper. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, 
you know, this is taking all these functional programming ideas I've been reading about on the internet, and now they're in a real programming language that I can use at work. And so that for me was incredibly exciting. I think Microsoft was really pushing the industry forward uh, in a way where, you know, while Java was stagnating, I mean, really nothing had been added to the Java language in the longest time. At that point, I think they were just getting generics. Uh, C Sharp was absolutely blasting forward, stealing great ideas from Lisp and Haskell and putting them into C Sharp and in ways that allowed me to take the everyday problems that I was trying to solve, you know, just should be easy problems and actually make them easy by giving me the appropriate abstractions for solving them. And that gave me this out, this, this ability to be able to use functional concepts at work because, well, you know, it's just C-sharp, right? I mean, there's, it's hard. It's not as though I have to pitch somebody this advanced functional language that nobody's ever heard of to use. I could simply write C-sharp, and then, you know, that, that was all there was to it. And thankfully, that I was working in C-sharp shop. So I, I really started to very much experiment with language integrated query, which at the time was conceptualized. I think a lot of people thought of it as just a, a nice a way of expressing a SQL query in your language instead of in a string. And then that SQL query would get converted into code and then sent off and executed remotely on the database server. And that was an incredibly important idea that was actually uh, an idea introduced into C-sharp that wasn't part of the original circles, triangles, and squares paper, at least uh, to my recollection. It wasn't just that you would bring SQL concepts directly into the programming language. So you could run you could run a SQL query as against in-memory objects like arrays, for example. That was the trick that they brought in from Haskell. This notion of function composition uh, of, of what's called a, a monadic composition, where you could take this query language that's defined in such an abstract way that not only would work over arrays and uh, streams, you could actually use it to compose a whole set of other data structures. They didn't even talk about that, but uh, they just sort of focused on the SQL case and the in-memory uh, use case. But it turned out that, that Link was even more flexible than than I think most developers understood. So that was the, the trick they brought in from Haskell was this notion of this high-level programming language that could be used to compose all sorts of different data structures. But then they pulled a trick out from Lisp, which was, well, you don't want to download all the database in memory and then run a query on it. That doesn't make any sense, right? That would be a lot of, that would be a lot of data transfer. What you really want to do is you want to run code on data as close to that data as possible so that you don't have to send data over the network just to run code on it to transform it because that involves a lot of network transfer and network transfer is expensive. What you want to do is you want to take that code and send it across the wire as close to the data as possible so that it could be processed there and then you could send back only the result of running that query which often is much smaller because you're applying filters and that type of thing. And so here they stole the idea from Lisp that code is data and data is code. And they took the SQL and basically allowed it to be uh, the, 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 the programming language, the, like the, the, the code that you wrote in your C-sharp language, they would allow you to represent it as a data structure at compile time. It could just be left, instead of compiled, it could be left as a data structure and then interpreted at runtime. And that's exactly what Scheme allows you to do. You can say, hey, look, this piece of code, don't run it right now. I'm going to interpret it later at runtime. And so they took ideas from some of the most progressive programming languages, and they combine them together to solve my problem. And, you know, using C-sharp, I was able to, all of a sudden, these CRUD applications became absolutely trivial, and it was this fantastic excuse to use these advanced concepts at work. And, and this once, was all still at, at Blast Radius? Um, this was me, I was, I was definitely exper experimenting with this, yes, at Blast Radius. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't doing a lot of it at work, but I was doing some of it at work, and I was showing it to like-minded developers, and I was saying, hey, check out what Link can do here. 
um, because they were still, I believe, on C-sharp 3, and so it was difficult to actually use it, although I could definitely show it to developers. Um, instead of having to show them Lisp, which requires this tremendous ramp learning curve, right? The, we talked about how sensitive developers are to programming languages. What was so important about what Eric did and, and the C-sharp team did was they really democratized functional programming by putting it, by just saying, you know what, let's stop trying to convince people to go use Haskell, and let's just take these good ideas and put them into the language so that people can use them in a very accessible way. And it, worked, it turns out it worked fine. A lot of people can do functional programming. They don't need to use a pure functional programming language. They don't need to learn an entirely new language. It's possible to take these ideas and put them into the language. And I think in that regard, Eric has been, you know, tr uh, is responsible for really moving the industry forward. Here now, you know, I guess it's been 10 years almost, 5, 10 years, now functional programming is ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal in the software industry. Uh, like scale it. We, we've seen all the benefits of functional programming, whether they're building scaled-out architectures, right? And now, amazingly, we're beginning to see that functional programming can even be useful in user interface building, something that I think was very counterintuitive even two or three years ago. Why, why would you want to build a user interface using a functional programming language. Well, it turns out that you can conceptualize user interface problems as functional programming problems. And amazingly, at the same time as you can take, as, as they can, not only can they be more simple, they can actually be faster. And that's one of the things that's just so exciting about this time. And I think Eric was a big part of that, I think, certainly in the .NET world. Um, and he's been trying to take those ideas and make their way into more of the programming languages that software developers actually use. I think nowadays he's, uh, he's working at Facebook, and, and I'm sure that he's probably doing something similar there. Um, but as I said, that was a, a real watershed moment for me, uh, and I, that, that, that's really the time where I decided I want to work for Microsoft. I didn't particularly care how, uh, but I started blogging um, you know, about how you could take these features, which were sort of marketed to developers as, oh, it's easy to pull your SQL data out now, Right, and you can write SQL query languages in your in your programming language, which really belied the depth and really the elegance of what had actually been built and how flexible it was. And I started writing blog posts about it. Right? I started writing blog posts about how uh, Link or this query language wasn't just for SQL data. You could, in fact, you could take large sections of your programming language and you could express them as queries. And that's exactly what I started to do. My C sharp started to start gradually the loops started to disappear. I wasn't writing loops anymore. I would start to realize that I could write entire functions as a simple query. And then sure enough, I'd look at the function calling that function and I'd say, well, wait a second, I can rewrite this as a query. And partly because the syntax was so nice, I didn't even really fully realize what I was doing, which is I was just making functional pipelines for data. I was expressing the entire program as a stream of data. I was doing stream transformation. Another extremely important step in my development as a software developer, understanding how flexible programs can be when you write them as stream transformers. And why are they flexible? Well, it's, it's the ability to easily trade off between space and time, right? I can, uh, I, I process this problem as a, as a stream. Well, I, I give the consumer the control instead of me going off and computing every possible option and handing them an array of every possible option. I can sort of progressively compute values for them on demand and, and that's really what Link was sort of pushing me to do. It was by providing me with such a great API, it was actually coaxing me into writing better, more flexible programs that were stream-oriented, that gave more control to the consumer and made it very easy to, after the fact, apply space-time trade-offs by memoizing, for example, um, basically caching the output of a function uh, you know, with just more functional programming, just calling a function on a function which returns another function. You can actually just sort of apply a cache in there and instantly sort of trade time for space. 
And um, it was just such a beautiful, beautiful, uh, from start to finish, just taking ideas that were already well-worn, that came from Haskell, that came from Scheme, but putting them into a programming language was such a beautiful API that made it trivial. And I think through, I don't know for certain, but I, I believe through that, that blog, I came to the attention of Sean Burke, uh, who was uh, putting together a team for the Silverlight Toolkit at Microsoft. Uh, and I mean, I really hit the jackpot there. Um, I mean, I, I thought that I would get to work at Microsoft. I didn't expect it to happen so quickly. And fundamentally, I really had a pretty low opinion of myself at that point. Uh, I, I went from having a pretty darn, I, from being pretty darn arrogant, thinking that I was a really good programmer, to in the space of eight months realizing that I was an awful programmer, that I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, I, I could have been doing for the last you know, five, six, seven years of my career, I could have been doing, have been doing a much better job, and being extremely humbled. And that's just when, you know, I got this shortly after that is just when I got the job interview. And let me tell you, you want confidence going into a job interview. And I fundamentally believed that I had no business working there. I wanted to work at Microsoft, but I didn't think I was good enough. And this, this change in your, in your attitude or your, your perception of yourself, that is because, because of all the research you did and, and, and you realized, you know, all the things that you didn't know, I guess, is that correct? That's exactly right, yeah. right? I, I, and the, the, the reverse end, of I've gone to the other end of the spectrum of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I knew enough to know what I didn't know. And that's really the, th- the third category of knowledge, right? The things you know, the things you don't know, and the things that you don't know that you don't know, by far the, the largest category of knowledge, right? I right. think uh, um, Donald Rumsfeld was, was lampooned, actually. I think he, he, said, he said something very much like this at a press conference one uh, about Iraq and uh, and was, was given a, a big, a very hard time about it. They said uh, uh, there, are, there are known knowns, uh, the th- known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. And, but he was effectively phrasing this, and it's actually an accurate statement. And it's very important uh, yeah. to expand, to move things from the category of the unknown unknowns into the known unknowns. Even doing that can make you a much better developer because you can assess, you can even, you can, you can know, you can build a, start to build a plan about how to get better. But really where I was at, my, at that stage of my career before I really started to explore was that I, I, <laughs> I thought programming was a relatively small sphere of loops and if conditions. And frankly, I thought it was pretty damn good. And I, I you know, and, and, uh, and it was a, it's a tremendously humbling experience to figure out that, well, there's a hell of a lot out there I wasn't, ex- I wasn't exposed to. Uh, and so, you know, I went into that interview very excited. I, I knew a lot about the Microsoft ecosystem, and I was extremely excited by what Microsoft is doing. And to this day, I still think that Microsoft is responsible for um, really pushing functional programming into the mainstream. And a lot of that absolutely should be attributed to Eric and also, of course, to Anders, who is the, uh, the, um, the, the lead on C-Sharp and, and a lot of the great members of the C-Sharp team. Lots of people I, I got to work with some of them at Microsoft and learned tremendously from. Um, you know, Microsoft, in my opinion, although, you know, I, I had opportunities to interview at places like Google, you know, I didn't really pursue them because as far as I was concerned, that was the exciting place to be because I could use a programming language that was available pretty much, you know, in, in you know, 30%, had something like 30% market share at the time, C-sharp, you know, there's, I could go into any corporation and I could use these advanced concepts to build beautiful programs. And to me, that was exciting. And I wanted to be a part of forwarding functional programming even further. I'm pushing it even further into the industry and really wanted to talk with these thought leaders. I mean, my eventual goal was to get on Eric's team and work with Eric, uh, and uh, and 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 you know continue continue on what I think was just the beginning of a lot of a lot of steps of pushing functional programming into the mainstream. But I I, I knew that I needed an in, 
and uh, and Silverlight, the Silverlight team uh, was was that in? You know, I certainly you know that was the they Microsoft reached out to me, and so that was my best opportunity. I think at first I didn't even I don't I, you know at the time I don't think I even get got back to them uh, at first because I, I really I just didn't think I was good enough at that stage. I thought you know maybe six seven months more of you know really practicing, and then maybe I'll go in and do the interview, and and then they they pinged me with a follow up, and and that's what convinced me I think that they weren't just sending out some sort of mass email that they really <laughs> wanted to like you know on some list. I really didn't have a lot of confidence, and that they really wanted to talk to me. How, and how so did they find I, you, by the way? Did, did you... uh, my assumption I never asked, but my assumption is the blog. The blog okay. was getting a, a, a you know, it's by no means a massive blockbuster. But I think what it did was it probably got a niche audience, uh, some of which were probably from Microsoft and interested in some of the same things, right? Okay. Um, uh, and so it was probably a, a niche, uh, more sophisticated audience that was interested in some of those concepts. And that's probably how I made my way um, to being noticed. And uh, it was in the UI sphere, in which I had a lot of Silverlight, of course, was a UI product. And, and um, I actually, although to be at the time, at the time I was, I, I didn't love the idea of Silverlight. I thought web standards were definitely an important, something, something we should be pursuing. At the same time, I was also very frustrated with my previous experience trying to make things work on multiple platforms. And I saw Silverlight as a potential option there. But, but if I'm being completely honest, you know, really this was my lateral in. I wanted to work at Microsoft and I thought, well, then I can make a lateral move later and maybe work for Eric. Um, However, working at Silverlight Toolkit turned out to be a fantastic team because it was a very un-Microsoft team. It was uh, a team that actually shipped their source, and they were on a very fast cycle. They shipped every three months. And the entire job of Silverlight Toolkit was simply to make controls. Silverlight was a relatively new framework, and it didn't have a lot of controls. And our job was not just to make controls, but to actually think up useful controls and, and build them. And so at that time, you know, we were kind of, although we had PMs, we as the developers really had tremendous freedom. Uh, and that was by far one of the most exciting times in my career because I was the dumbest guy in the room. And I, I, I really can't stress how important it is to those developers out there to find a room where you are the dumbest guy in the room. Because uh, I was working with some absolutely, you know, I, I had much more enthusiasm than I had talent at the time, right? And then hopefully you're, the, you work really hard and the talent gap closes with the enthusiasm gap. And, and that's, that's part of the way that you do it. You, you work in an environment that's incredibly competitive where you're working with really, really strong people and you can learn from them. And hopefully competitive, not in the sense of you're not going to help each other, right? But competitive in the sense that everyone there is really has the values about has tremendous values about excellence. Um, we re- we reviewed each other's codes, you know, shoulder to shoulder, um, and we were in. I think we were pretty hard on each other, and and in a really good way, in a really positive way, because we knew that we were releasing our source. We really. Uh, we weren't, it wasn't open source in the traditional sense that we didn't accept contributions, but this was still incredibly progressive for Microsoft at the time. Right? Microsoft is now a changed company. They've seen religion and they have open source. But back then, a team like this that was shipping on three-month cycles and releasing its source was unheard of. And so that was exciting for me because it attracted some really talented people and I got to work with really talented people. But I also got to be the PM. I also got to... Uh, think up useful controls and go ahead and write them. As long as I didn't mind working on Saturday and Sunday, which nobody pushed me to do, I wanted to do, um, there was no problem with that. I could, I could simply build a control and then we could release it. And the other thing that allowed 
us that freedom was we had this, this at the time, pretty revolutionary no, uh, notion for Microsoft, which was quality bands. We could simply say, put out a control and say, look, we're experimenting with this. You can use it or you can not use it, but we're not going to guarantee it's long-term support. And that really gave, really this was Microsoft flirting with open source, right? They were flirting, trying to get the ideas of open source without having to completely embrace it. And, uh, and that was a really exciting experience. Um, so I think we're, we're almost out of time, guys. I think I've been yammering uh constantly are do we do we have more time or oh yeah oh we we have time and for <laughs> us it's like uh nine o'clock no ten o'clock at night it's fine we have time well do me a favor i'm just gonna run and get some water is that okay i'll be right back yes yeah absolutely hello hello yep we're still here great so um i spent a good amount of time working on the silverlight toolkit and although i built some exciting controls um a large amount I, I began to become somewhat frustrated again because I, I felt that old feeling coming back of this is harder than it should be. And indeed, um, you know, C sharp didn't turn out necessarily to be the best programming language for UI programming. There was a lot of boilerplate code involved in building these controls. And this is also when I started to really have questions about the wisdom in some domains of static typing. I found that a large amount of my code was dedicated to building, frankly, what I thought of as curating type systems. Uh, I would, or cur curating types, that is. I would continue to try and build these, 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 this, these programs that would sort of, um, you know, expose these properties. But it, it, increasingly, like, I look at the amount of code that was, from my perspective, simply boilerplate. And it, I found it somewhat frustrating. Uh, so that's one thing that sort of happened where I started to begin to question the wisdom of working in a typed language, which for the most of my career I absolutely had done for, with the exception of that brief time working in JavaScript. Uh, and the other thing that came up was that I, I really started to get excited about using those functional programming concepts inside of uh, in, in UI programming. Uh, but I noticed that there was, you know, the the... the Degree to which you could use functional programming for, for programming concepts in UI programming was was much more limited than in other areas. When I was a full stack programmer, partially because of the prevalence of mutation inside of uh, UIs at the time, certainly UIs were constantly there was mutation everywhere. Right, you're you're constantly changing things, and you know it, it was odd that I. I Although occasionally, like you know, you know, a user enters something and then you have to do some computation, for example, then you could apply functional programming. But they're just, you know, particularly in CRUD applications, there wasn't a lot of that, right? Is if you're just doing the UI side, all you're doing is sort of sending the data over the wire, and then it's somebody else's job to do that sort of transformation. And and I, I kind of had an itch that I wanted to scratch. I wanted to do more stuff with functional programming, and so I I. I, uh, I found an excuse to go meet with Eric, um, which was that I decided that I would try and take Link, which I mentioned earlier was this language-integrated query, which you could actually not just use for streams of information, you could use it to compose anything. And I decided that I would take our asynchronous unit tests and try and express them as queries, which is a bit of an odd thing to do. But the reason, the reason I wanted to try that was that I noticed that you could apply um, that I, I, F Sharp was doing this at the time. It was using this concept of this language-integrated query to build asynchronous programs declaratively. One of the problems we had with our unit tests in Silverlight was that they were completely time-based. The idea was I would do some asynchronous action, and then I would run some test. And if the test passed, that's great. But the idea is that that asynchronous action might not have completed, so I would just insert a delay. So all of our unit tests were simply based on delays. So we would do something, wait for 10 milliseconds, do something else, wait for 10 milliseconds. 
And sure enough, you know, one of the test servers running overnight gets gets you know bogged down, and then all of a sudden you get false negatives because uh, you, the, the delay is not enough because the processor is too busy. And so this was a problem that was plaguing us. Really, what we wanted to be writing was event-driven asynchronous unit tests, right? We wanted to be able to say, hey, render this on screen and wait for an event that's, that actually indicates that it truly was rendered, and then do our tests. But that took us into what we now know to be, mo- to be callback hell, right? This is us. We were experiencing callback hell in C-sharp long before it became commonplace to talk about this in uh, Node.js or in, in the JavaScript world. And I'd seen what F-sharp was able to do with its async monad, which is basically I can take an asynchronous program and combine it together using functions. And so you can take multiple async programs and combine them together into a sequence using functions instead of just endlessly nesting callbacks. And I said, you know what? I can take that thing that they've done in, in F-sharp and I can do it in C-sharp. I don't need a fancy functional programming language. I can make it work because Link, this general purpose composition mechanism in C-sharp, is flexible enough to not just use on streams, but also on async tests. And I did it, and that was my excuse to go show it off to Eric. And so I went to see Eric, I showed him the work, and, uh, and Eric said, you know what, this is a lot like something we're working on. And this brings me to one of the, the other incredibly profound experiences I had as a developer where I had one of these paradigm shifts. And Eric said to me, you know, what's the difference between an event and a stream? Because right? I've been built using Link to compose together streams. And by streams, I mean um, iterators for those out there, for those developers out there who are familiar, right? This notion of an, a data structure which you can get an item out of and then you can request another item. And you can keep requesting items until, and it progressively just keeps generating items for you until finally it says, I have no more items. So that's the notion of this iterator. And it's, it's in Java, it's in C sharp, and, and uh, it's been around, you know, it's, it's described in Design Patterns, which is a book that's 21 years old. And it's, it's coming to JavaScript, the next version of JavaScript as well. It's a very common um, idiom in computer science. And so that's, the, that's what I was very familiar with, building programs that way. And Eric said, you know, what's the difference between an event and, and, and an iterator? And, and you know, I, it's, I, I couldn't understand what he was getting at. I mean, to me, at the time, the way I did event-based programming, which was with a bunch of callbacks, was completely different than the way I did stream programming, which was as this nice declarative series of compositions over a stream. And Eric said, you know what, they're, they're not any different than each other that they're, one is just the other in reverse. In iterators, you're pulling information out. You're each the consumer's in control, and it just keeps requesting the next item. But in events, it's the producer that's in control, and it keeps pushing items at you. But it turns out that all of the same operations that can be used to compose over iterators, things that you can abstract like files as, you can abstract arrays as iterators, can also be applied to events. It doesn't matter whether it's push or pull, you're still basically providing the same transformations. And that was an incredible idea. It absolutely opened my mind up to a completely different way of doing UI programming. All of a sudden, instead of being relegated to a tiny little segment of my user interface, functional programming could be used to string together my entire user interface. Every single event could be thought of as a stream that I could just transform. And I began to see that all of a sudden, queries were replacing the vast majority of my code in my user interface. I was abs- Back then, this was called link to events. And when it was eventually released, it was called Rx, or reactive extensions. And um, 
I set about using reactive extensions to, uh, I rewrote my unit testing framework to use reactive extensions because what Eric had built was definitely more generic and better. And then I turned around and I was the first to incorporate reactive extensions into the Silverlight toolkit. Uh, and, it, you know, it was such a transformative way about thinking about user interfaces that events were collections. They were just like any other collection, right? They could be transformed. Um, I was so excited to use it and I wanted to see much like those previous, every time I learned a new paradigm, I would try and turn it, turn the dial to 11 and see just how far I could take that paradigm. That's exactly <clears> what I wanted to do. I wanted to build user interfaces that were nothing but stream composition. And that was perhaps a little too progressive. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I tried to get Silverlight. I tried to get this new data type, which had been introduced, called Observable, which is sort of the, you know, the, the reverse of an iEnumerable, or the, the iterator. It's, it's called an Observable. I tried to get it into Silverlight, and I ran into um, what I think is now, you know, it's been described quite a bit. I think a lot of people who follow Microsoft have, you know, those who, I think it was a Vanity Fair article, that I think detailed a lot of the situation that was very representative of my experience in Microsoft, which is at the time, there was a lot of things about Microsoft that made um, it very difficult to take revolutionary ideas that came out of the R&D department and translate them into products. And very often, those great ideas would crash into a wall, a thick wall of middle management. And that's exactly what happened. Middle management, whose incentive structure was to be frankly, cautious and iterative. And so, and that's not, there's no, there's no bad, bad guys in this story. It's just simply that um, I had, I'd seen what I thought was an absolutely revolutionary idea. And I wanted to, to make, as I think any developer would, I wanted to take Silverlight and take this idea into Silverlight and make it more competitive with, at the time, we had really very strong competitors like Flash. I thought this could be a differentiator. And it was really rejected purely from what I could see for somewhat political reasons, nothing to do with me, just frankly intra-team, um, you know, perhaps lack of cooperation between teams, whether it was the, the, the .NET team or the Silverlight team. And that was a pretty disillusioning experience on my part because I really made a full court press to try and get this technology into Silverlight and uh, really ran up against a pretty thick wall. And it, it really represents two fundamentally different ways. And when I think back on it, neither of them wrong, but two fundamentally different ways of, of thinking about how design, how to design. And it, it taught me a lot. Uh, my, my idols in this industry have taught me a lot about how to design. And I think there's a very different school of design. And that different school of design is, I'm going to come up with a use case. I'm going I'm to collect up my use cases and then I'm going to build a system to accommodate those use cases. That is a completely reasonable way of designing things. Here's another way of doing it. I'm going to figure out the simplest possible way of explaining a problem. And it, will be, it may be very flexible, but the point is it's built from the simplest elements, the simplest, ortho, uh, the simplest possible orthogonal elements that don't, where you have pieces that, that, that don't overlap with each other, but be, can be combined and composed together to create a, a, a huge amount of complexity. I, mean, I want to build a system like that and then feel confident that it can meet not just the use cases I have today, but any use cases that come up in the future. And that is a, a leap of faith to some degree. For some, some managers see that as a leap of faith. That, well, why should I spend this time developing this framework for use cases I don't have? And it's not necessarily that. You're, you're, you're definitely trying to address the use cases that you do have, but you're trying to address them by exploring the space carefully and really understanding what problem you're trying to solve. Anybody can build a 200-line function to solve one specific problem. 
it's the 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 paradox the paradoxical element of software engineering is that complexity is easy and simplicity is hard Uh, it's extremely hard to build a simple system that can be combined together using composition to create complex scenarios that can solve every problem because it really requires you to fully understand the space and it's the time that it takes to understand that space and try and fail that is really the cost there right um Anybody can enumerate seven use cases and go build a function for all seven one of those use cases. And my firm belief is that the lower you are on the stack, if you're building a platform, you should be designing in the latter and not the former. You should be building simple elements. Instead of trying to predict every possible use that your users are going to have, you should be adding simple and orthogonal elements and then allowing, giving your developers the basic building blocks and tools and then teaching them how to compose those together to build solutions. And that's just not the mindset we had at the time in that team. And that's, that's okay. Uh, you know, that's, both of those are equally valuable ways of doing design. It just, that, frankly, that was my ideology. And uh, at that point, I decided, well, you know, if I'm not going to get to work with this revolutionary technology and I'm not going to be able to think this way on this team, I want to work somewhere else. And so at first, I transitioned to a R&D uh, team inside of Bing because uh, the, the advantage of working on R&D was that I could use the most advanced technology I possibly wanted uh, and then, you know, I wouldn't have to answer to anybody because most of these things were prototypes. And then they, if they were good prototypes, they'd get productized by a different team. Uh, and, and that was great for eight months or so. But in the reality is, you know, R&D can be exhausting in the sense that it's, it's, it's not a lot of fun to build code that gets constantly just gets thrown away, right? Or somebody takes and completely rewrites. Uh, at some point, you want to have a lasting impact. You want to have users because it, it, it keeps you grounded and, and, uh, and that's when I decided that I wanted to make a, a change. Uh, and I'd had a couple of people on my team leave to join Netflix and had heard through the grapevine what a great experience they'd had at Netflix, um, you know, and what a great company culture it had. And uh, my, I, my desire really was to get out there, uh, do web work again, right? You know, I, I, Silverlight at the time, I thought its long-term uh, prospects were not good. I think this was after the Apple decision to prevent Flash and, and Silverlight on iOS devices. And I thought, well, you know, Silverlight's not going to be the platform of the future that I really want to bet on the web. And at the time, Rx, this, this events, you know, queries over events idea was also already available in JavaScript. And I thought, what a great thing. I'm going to get to go and work on the web. And I'm going to, wherever I go, I'm going to, you know, bring the gospel of thinking of user interfaces, thinking of events as collections. And, uh, I went to Netflix and I presented them with RX the very first week that I was there. I think it was the uh, the Friday of the first week that I was there, and that was you know that was a good, good amount of hubris for a new guy to come in with an idea like that. And um, but to their credit, I think, and this is it, what you hear about Netflix is I mean, I'm frankly I'm, I'm not here to plug Netflix. Uh, this is you know this is absolutely true. I feel really strongly about. Uh, what a great culture they have. And, and it's been quite a contrast, I'd say, with Microsoft. I think Microsoft's had a lot of changes since when I worked there. I think by all accounts, I know lots of people who work there, and, and I think it's a, a great place to work, and a lot of the issues that I've talked about have been worked out. Um, but you know, Netflix, I can, I can vouch for, and definitely has the kind of culture that makes that a possibility, that it makes it possible to present really progressive ideas, have a team sign off on it, and then just go do it. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, it turned. I didn't. Now I wasn't simply presenting the technology to present the technology. Uh, sure enough, Netflix had all the same problems that every large JavaScript problem, uh, every large JavaScript problem pr- program had back then, which was race conditions, callback hell. I mean, 
everybody was trying to figure out how to build large-scale JavaScript applications uh, where everything was asynchronous and make code that was even remotely maintainable or understandable. And they had exactly this problem. And I'm sure anywhere where I worked where they had a large JavaScript code base, they would have exactly had this problem. And Rx was a fantastic solution to this problem. They, they, they were able to recognize right away that, you know, that this was able to resolve this complexity. They wouldn't have to build these state machines to coordinate all this async programming when they could use a completely declarative language. Uh, for for coordinating large and complex async programs, and so I was able to work diligently there um, to help them integrate RX into the user interface. And I think um, by you know six months or seven months, most of the development team was pretty proficient with RX uh, and was pretty darn happy with it. Um, and so uh, at that that that's almost brings us up to now. I think after a six or seven month period, um, my manager, an excellent manager, uh, had. Enough faith in me, I think, based on the experience with Rx, uh, that she wanted to give me really a, a once-in-a-lifetime problem, a once-in-a-lifetime challenge, which was um, she wanted me to figure out how we could improve the client-server interaction. Um, we were getting this rare opportunity in Netflix. In the middle, I came into Netflix in the middle of a tremendous amount of change. And one of the big changes they were making is they were going to change the server side to allow every client-side developer to be able to write their own scripts. Previously, there was simply a single REST service layer, which every single Netflix application, even though that some were very different than others and presented very different information than others, all of them would access this one service layer. And they were finding over time that it was just too bloated. It was too difficult to get right. Um, and they wanted to basically give client teams ownership of their own server scripts so they could build customized endpoints for their specific needs. And as typically happens in organizations, we lurch from one extreme to another. And so total control in the hands of one team to everybody has control and there's no centralization. And the reality is I could sort of see pretty early on that the right balance was something in between that. Uh, Netflix applications are different, but you know what? They're, they're all still more the same than they are different. And so the, the, the first thing, at, at least at first when this initiative was rolled out, we could immediately see that there was a little bit of chaos here, that teams were sort of rewriting the same code twice, uh, that more, they could have been doing more code sharing. And uh, my, my manager, Kim Trott, who's a fantastic manager, sort of recognized this problem. She's really good at recognizing where there are opportunities for improving things and sort of put me on the problem. And the notion was that probably in some way this, this data access layer, this this you know, protocol for, for data access would involve Rx, uh, would involve this observable data type. And that's partly, I think, why I was assigned to the problem. But observable wasn't some magical solution to this problem. Um, you know, it was a significant challenge. And uh, uh, that's really what turned into the product that we have outside of Netflix today, which is called Falcor. Uh, Falcor is a, uh, a protocol for web applications to exchange data. And it's probably the product of of Three years of work on my part. Um, uh, now, during that process, of course, we ship product uh, and on top of a variety of different betas. But only recently did we, I think, mature it sufficiently enough that we felt comfortable open sourcing it. Uh, and uh, and that was probably it's probably been the biggest project of my career, and certainly the most uh, ambitious in terms of scope. Uh, and really gave me the opportunity to to use every single thing that I learned throughout my career. Um, took some of uh, the, the important ideas I learned from Link and the important ideas I learned from great design from people like Rich Hickey, uh, who is the designer of the uh, Clojure language, uh, Clojure with a J, 
uh, which is a, uh, a functional Lisp for uh, Java, uh, and is also available for uh, also compiles into JavaScript if you'd like to use it. Um, Rich is is a really visionary guy, and he has a lot of ideas about design which resonated with me. Um, uh, Clojure is an absolutely beautiful language, uh, and what's great about Clojure is it's what I talked about earlier. It's a series of simple idioms that are orthogonal to each other, which can be combined together to solve seemingly very complex problems with these simple elements. And it's so beautifully designed that if you take even one piece away, the whole thing falls apart. And that, to me, is good design. It, every single piece absolutely has to be there, and it doesn't overlap with anything else. And I took a look at what Link got right. Link, especially with Rx, Rx basically allowed you to, 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 to think about data in three dimensions. The what, the where, and the when. The what was, using this query language, you could select as much or as little data as you wanted. The where was that this query language, if, if the data was located remotely, this query language, instead of being evaluated and compiled, could be turned into data as like basically just the, the definition of the code and then remoted. And that's using that Lisp trick we talked about earlier of converting code into data and vice versa. And then the when, Rx, is actually what closed the when part. Before, now, queries can actually push data at you progressively as it becomes available. And so you, you had this beautiful three-dimensional orthogonality of data. You didn't have to block a thread. You could simply be alerted whenever pieces of the query came in uh, over a stream. And that was a profoundly amazing, it was just a beautiful way of dealing with data. It's still breathtakingly beautiful when I think about it now. And I said, well, how do I take this idea of three-dimensional data and how do I put it into Falcor? Now, it's important to understand, I, I couldn't just use link. That, that's not the right level of abstraction, I think, for client to server. Um, so I'm just going to stop right here, guys. How's this going so far? Uh, I think we're running out of time. <laughs> I mean, well, for us, it's, it's fantastic to listen to all of this. Yeah, um, it's, it's really it's, uh, it's amazing to hear all this. And, and it's so funny because I'm sitting here trying to think of questions, and when I think of it, in the next sentence, you answer it. <laughs> so. Okay, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going, then I'll pick up where I left off, uh, yeah. and you can sort of edit this out. Um, yeah, this is no problem. So, so we, we have time, so I would really love to hear uh, the story up, uh, you know, up to now and, 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 and um, yeah, what happened. Yeah, I think we're, <laughs> I mean, we're at Fal Falco now, and I think that's, that's probably one of the most interesting things. So, um, I hope we can get some questions. Yeah. So how is it with the time for you? Do you still have time? Mm, I technically do have a meeting at 2, unfortunately, but I might be able to just show up at uh, at 2.30. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, we're happy to so, uh, continue. Okay. So my initial conception was to just build Link, build what would work so well in C Sharp in JavaScript, and that was my data access layer. And I thought, well, I'll build this query language, and then we'll be able to remote the query language off the server, evaluate it, and send back the data. And I came to the revelation that to, to the realization, excuse me, that the right level of abstraction for communicating between the device and the edge wasn't necessarily a SQL-style query language. Um, in general, SQL-style query languages are great for communicating inside of the network. But they had a big disadvantage uh, when communicating over a very long, uh, a long pipe, like a 3G connection, for example. And that's that 
they're difficult. It's difficult to cache the results of a query. So uh, to give you an example, let's say I, I select the top five most popular movies, right? Well, if I want to cache that query, what's the cache key? Is it the query itself? Uh, well, what if I write another query that's basically exactly the same, right? I mean, in the most, gen- the most naive implementation is just the string text of the query. But, I mean, you can take two queries that are absolutely equivalent by, and switch up two AND clauses, for example, in, in an associative operation, and then they're identical, and then you can end up with a cache miss. It turns out that there's a distributed architecture out there that was designed to maximize cacheability. And I was designing, keep in mind, I was designing the service layer for Netflix, which is primarily a browsing problem. Netflix, for the most of the duration of time that you use Netflix, in general, the catalog is not changing out from under you. We mostly have a large amount of metadata out there about titles. And over time, we just want you to sort of navigate it and browse through it, if you will. And there was a distributed architecture that was designed exactly for this type of browsing problem, and that was REST. And I sort of took a look at this, and I said, well, you know, REST has all of the ideas here that I want. It has this notion of just like when you you're, use your web browser and you browse somewhere, it, it caches it. And, uh, and then if you, you, know, you go back later on, it just comes out of the cache. And so that's why REST is such a great architecture for distributed architectures because it's, got a, it's very easily cacheable. And caching is really important when you've got a distributed architecture. And uh, if, you're, if you're crossing long, long, you know, long gaps, and if you're going across like, a long distance on the network or you're on a slow connection like 3G, caching can make or break a system. And so I, I took a step back and I said, well, how do I take the idea of data orthogonality from Link but how do I apply it to this architecture, this distributed architecture, which seems more appropriate for my problem, right? It's, Netflix is mostly static data, at least for the length of, of your usage. How do we maximize for caching? And within REST, I found the solution to nearly all of the problems I had. But interestingly enough, I noticed that I, 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 my initial response is, I just can't use REST. There was a huge amount of in my opinion, noise on the internet about REST. And a, and a lot of developers, unfortunately, I think they get into, a, they start building a service layer for their application, their default decision is to use REST. And it turns out that REST, if you look at where it came from, it was basically extracted from what worked about the World Wide Web. Right? The World Wide Web had ideas in it that worked, and sort of REST was sort of retroactively um, expl- used to explain what worked about the World Wide Web. It's it's a it's um it's an architectural pattern, and if you look at the World Wide Web, the the types of client server interactions that happen in the World Wide Web, as in browsing web pages, are very different than the, the types of client server interactions you see with modern web applications. And the primary difference is this. Web pages tend to have small amounts of large resources. You go on a web page, you have a big HTML document with a few images. Whereas web applications, and certainly Netflix, tend to deal with large, excuse me, did I say small amounts of large resources for web pages? And web applications have large amounts of small resources. If you load up Netflix and on your iPad and then you swipe your hand, what you'll see can be hundreds of resources flying by in, in an instant. And each one of those resources might be this tiny little JSON object describing basic information about that title. Well, HTTP was designed for coarse-grained resources. I'm going to make one HTTP call, I'm going to get this big resource, and it's, it's, even though it has a big header and it's got a lot of overhead to making that call, it's okay because I'm getting a big payload. As soon as you try to make an HTTP request for every individual resource, as, when those resources get very, very small, 
the whole thing just doesn't work. I mean, you end up with a huge number of HTTP requests and a lot of latency. Now, that said, the, uh, the fundamental ideas behind REST, the things that make it work, like identitance, can still be applied to small resources. Really, you just need to figure out how you can build an architecture that's designed for transferring small resources in such a way that you can still cache them. And that's really fundamentally what Falcor was. It was, let's take the ideas from REST, and instead of create instead of the graph, the whole world being this, this graph of uh, resources, or the World Wide Web, let's do what web applications actually want, which is let's give them a JSON object. At least the vast majority of the applications I've worked with um, are working with web app, modern web applications are working with JSON. And it's always simpler. One is the simplest number. <laughs> it's always simpler if you can find a way of exposing a single unified data model and that's what I wanted to do. I figured out that if you could expose all of the data a web application ever needed at a single URL, as a single JSON resource, well, then we basically get around the inefficiencies of HTTP. Because instead of downloading that entire JSON resource, you would, instead of specifying paths like URL paths, you would then, then you would specify paths through the JSON object. So you would go to one URL, you'd only make requests to one resource. But then in the query string, you'd specify one or more paths through the JSON object. Now, because these are paths, I can all the same principles about REST still apply. I, I have simple operations like get and put, which map, you know, like which map to the JSON instead of the HTTP, and then I can be, conf and then I can know that those operations are identical, which means that they're safe to cache. And although I couldn't use HTTP caching because it was too coarse grained, I would just use an in-memory JSON cache. So at any given moment, when you look inside the Falcor cache, all you're seeing is a local copy of that big, potentially massive JSON object out there on the server. And that was a very simple idea. Every single time you requested a new piece of the JSON object, we would send off a request to this one URL, and then we'd download only the pieces that you asked for, and then write them into the, the local cache in memory, and then hand them to you asynchronously using a push interface. And that gave us the what, where, and when of data again. Because now you could ask for as many paths as you want, and they'd all go over in a single network request. And so the cost of HTTP was amortized. The, the, that one HTTP request was amortized over potentially as little or as much data as you wanted. So you have total flexibility along the what axis. The where axis, you had total flexibility about where, where that data lived because uh, paths could be remoted across the network or they could be evaluated against an in-memory cache. So it was the same API regardless of where that data was. And finally, because the data, it, because the, it, the interface was asynchronous, it's in fact an observable, the, the, uh, and we also support promises, but it's that data structure that Eric taught me about. Um, now we can deliver the data to you as soon as it arrives. And so if you ask for 10 things, the three of them are in the cache, we can deliver you those three immediately, and then the, the other seven when they finally come back from the network. How far down does um, does the Falcor backend go? And by that I mean, um, does it is it responsible for actually querying the database itself, or do do you hand that off to existing services that might have been there before? How does that work? Well, so that's really up to you. The Falcor stops on the server at the component, which which is a router. And for those of you out there familiar with routers in web applications, I mean, it's just like what it sounds like a router matches so that like 
a router is a way of lazily creating resources, right? It's possible that Amazon, for example, doesn't really have an HTML file on its server. Well, it probably doesn't anyway. It could. It might, but it probably doesn't have an HTML file on its server that says, hi, Joffer, at the top of the toolbar. It's not just waiting for me to come and then it serves me a static HTML file. What it does is it recognizes, based on the inputs coming in, maybe the, the URL, potentially, uh, that this is that I'm asking for the index page for me, and then it has a router which matches certain patterns of URLs, and then runs some code to lazily create that HTML file by going to the data, database and getting the data and creating the HTML file and serving it. And it's that lazy evaluation, and this, of course, this notion of lazy evaluation comes comes very easily to me because that's how streams work. Instead of generating an entire array of results, right? Every single time you can you can generate a, a stream is basically code masquerading as data. And so every single time I ask it for the next item, maybe the data is in memory and sitting there and it's being pulled out of an array, or maybe it's computing it for me on the fly. That's how laziness works. And laziness, although not strictly speaking a functional programming concept, is a, is a programming that is, is a concept very frequently used with functional programming. And so I, I innately understood that basically a router was a, a, a way of lazily creating adjacent parts, the parts of the JSON object that were asked for on demand. And that allowed me to give the illusion that we had this massive JSON uh, files just sitting there on our application server, when in fact, based on the parts of the, app, of the JSON file that you requested, we would match that with this specialized router that's matching JavaScript paths instead of URLs, right? Because we only have one URL. It's not matching the URL, it's matching the JavaScript paths you pass into that URL, and looking for patterns, and then going off to the database and realizing that fragment of the JSON object on demand. And so whether you choose to go through a, a micro, like from within your route handler, the code that, 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 ex that you execute once the route is matched, you might decide to go through a microservice architecture, you might decide to go directly to the database. We at Netflix go through a, a microservice architecture, and that has a lot of benefits. Okay, so, so Filecore ends at the router, basically, and, and everything below that is, is up to you. Much like... Um, your your web application your your, um, your web application framework Express MVC or Restify end effectively there and then the rest is up to you. Yes, mm -hmm. is that what allowed you guys? I mean, there must have been some sort of a, a transition to go from the the existing system to this new system. Or I mean, it wasn't probably a complete re rewrite, was it? Um, the, well, the good news was we were going to be doing a rewrite either way because we'd ah. already resolved that that server was going to get rewritten to give us the flexibility we wanted. So we didn't have to take an additional cost. But so Falco really doesn't sit on top of anything that, that you had before is I guess what I'm getting at. Um, well, I mean, downstream, the, the, like our databases didn't change, didn't have to change very much, but our middle tier effectively completely changed. Before mm -hmm. it was just one REST uh, you know, REST API for everyone to use and, and, you know, and then it turned into uh, a scriptable uh, we, like you could write your own scripts against a series of backend services. And what I did was I basically wrote Falcor, the Falcor router as a script. And then everyone started using that script and basically plugging in their own route handlers. And then they would talk to uh, a Java API, uh, a Java, a series of Java APIs and access the backend service data. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, really what happened with Falcor. Uh, the reason I think the project was a success, and today all of our Netflix UIs use Falcor, and we've open sourced it, and I think we've gotten quite a bit of interest, um, was that both, uh, the good news is, uh, technologically I'd finally reached a, a, a pretty mature point in my technological development. I really understood functional programming, I really understood functional reactive programming, uh, and, and metaprogramming. I'd really 
I had at least some level of depth in the key pillars, I think, for any software developer uh, that, that every, every software developer should know. I didn't just have the breadth. I had some depth in all those areas, and I was able to draw on those different elements, on different programming languages I knew, and different ideas from, from different disciplines to build something that really solved the problem. Um, but that really wouldn't have been enough. Um, in order to get Falcor adopted, and frankly, for that matter, to do any innovation whatsoever, you need to be a triple threat as a developer. And I finally got to the place where I was I knew how to do the two things that you need to do to make innovation happen, in addition to actually innovating, which is the, the technical part, which honestly, frankly, is, is not that it's easy, but it's easier, I think, in my opinion, uh, than these two other parts, which is to become an advocate and a teacher. Uh, and so if you're going to try and convince a company to... To, to make a huge bet on completely untested and, un, at that time, undeveloped technology, you need to be really good at explaining it and selling it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 that's probably the much more significant maturation process I've gone through at Netflix than my technical, uh, you know, than, rather than my technical abilities. I've, I've gotten much better at explaining things. Um, I, I do, well, I, yeah, frankly, I, I build a lot of PowerPoints and I, build, I write a lot of documents. <laughs> and I've come to, and this is something that I, would have been inconceivable me five years ago, you know. Um, and I've come to understand that that's, that's just, that is the natural endpoint, I think. If you, if you, what really is important to you as a developer is impact and innovation, uh, and you want to keep making things better, don't think that innovation in technology is easy because we're, we're technologists. Like, there's this impression that somehow we in the, um, the computer science industry or, or, or excuse me, in the software industry are or we're, we're so progressive and we just take every new idea that comes along. In fact, I find us as an industry to be very conservative. There's a reason why, you know, we're just starting to, like, move C++ out of some, some industries and they're just starting to transition into Java. As Generally speaking, as an industry, we are very conservative. There's lots of banks out there sell on mainframes. I'm not saying that's bad or good. What I am saying is that I think people outside of the industry and even some people inside the industry have the impression that innovation is just comes naturally and we're just constantly innovating. In my, I think Doug Crockford said this best, which is that, you know, generally speaking, programmers, the, the, the industry moves forward not because programmers learn new things. It's because they either die or become managers. And then younger programmers <laughs> learn those things and come up. And yeah. I think that's an extremely pessimistic viewpoint, and I hope it's not true. Uh, and I know to some degree it's not true, uh, but there's also a lot of truth to it. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely an extreme. And I, if, if it wasn't possible to get people to learn things, we wouldn't be using Falcor right now in Netflix, and we wouldn't be using RX right now in Netflix, which was at least as hard to train developers who'd spent their entire life, you know, doing uh, thinking about user interfaces just as a series of mutations to get them to think about it as streams is a tremendous a tremendous challenge for them, right? I mean, it's like what I had to do in order to take all these exciting things and and have them be used by a large number of people and really have the impact I wanted was I had to learn how to t- teach them. And um, that was definitely that was definitely the most challenging part. It wasn't the technology; it was learning how to advocate and learning how to teach. And uh, and I think that's that's probably been the most satisfying uh, thing about working at Netflix. It's been developing those two skills to the point where I can now. I feel like if I have a great idea, I can actually bring it to fruition. Um, 
But you know, it's it's it has been three years, and it's been a really challenging process of innovation. And and most of those challenges weren't technical. Most of those challenges were in the other two areas of organizational, uh, and uh, and and getting developers to buy in to this idea and work with you and, and actually and learn it because learning is not free, right? Um, would you say that uh, part of this or part of the 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 reason that this was successful is is you maturing as a developer and understanding the importance of um for lack of a better word the politics on getting something um getting adoption for something or is it um that Netflix just has such a you know really really good environment that uh, nurtures this kind of um process or is, I guess so, it's so, I mean, both, definitely but, both definitely yeah. both I mean I, I don't think any level of maturation uh, would have you know allowed me to make this kind of uh, an impact at at some of the companies I worked for in the past I mean it's really important to understand that Netflix has an incredibly progressive culture uh, even relative to some really uh, top tier software and software companies uh, and and you know that they definitely gave me the opportunity, and that's really all you can ask for as a developer: the opportunity. But it's really just the, the basics. And there still had there was still you know at this point I've probably trained at least within the company, and certainly much more externally, but within the company, trained at least a hundred developers to uh, to to use functional reactive programming. And functional reactive programming really is three. You've got to learn three things at the same time. You got to learn functional programming. You've got to learn to think of. Uh, you've got to learn reactive programming. And you have to learn uh, vector programming. In other words, how to think of basically everything as a collection and program around it. That's a phenomenally hard thing for developers to do, and it's a huge credit to our developers, right? That they that they're willing to take that on. Uh, it's easier, obviously, as as people come on and they're new, and it's just the way we do things. Um, but even early in the process, we've had so we've got such great devs here, and there's, we've got the right culture that fosters it. That you know, people were willing to just dive into this thing. You know, again, I wasn't. I was the new guy. I was the new kid, right? Um, but I think, to their credit, they recognize because we've got such great devs. They recognize there was something there. I, I really, I tend to think of programmers. In my experience, a lot of programmers have relatively simple emotional lives in the sense that they're a lot like. I think of them like stockbrokers, and so either stockbrokers who have greed and 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 fear, right? But developers have fear, and fear is is there's a lot of fear in software development. And that's partly why we don't get. Innovation is like we're not constantly taking up new technologies. There's definitely a fringe in our industry where it's constantly doing that, but the vast majority of the industry, you know, is still working is going to be working the same technology for a long, long time before they make a transition, and that's okay. That's that's not that's okay. It's it's that it's understandable. Software developers are already working on top of 26 layers of abstraction, right, between them and the operating system and the metal underneath them, the device driver, the operating system. Every new layer of abstraction that they don't understand makes it harder for them to do their job. And that's why teaching and advocacy, really teaching is not just teaching people how to do it. It's also giving them the confidence that, you know, because they're on two-week development cycles, some of them, or even three-day development cycles, some of them, you will be there. I think that's a huge part of it, right? Part of being a teacher is, um, is really help, helping people understand that the learning process is really a partnership, right? And that, you know, you're not just going to disappear on Friday night when there's, there's a deadline looming and they don't understand fully the technology that they're using yet, right? You have to give them the, the, uh, the guarantee that, you know, you're going you're gonna to be there to help them because without that, you know, they don't want to take on the risk of learning additional technology because it, it can really make their life difficult. You have the, the, and that's really what it takes. You need to get over the fear. And it's, with, with developers, it's not greed. Far from it. It's excitement. There's yeah. fear and there's excitement. 
If you can push past the fear and get them excited about technology, well, then just get the hell out of their way. Because <laughs> that's really all you have to do. You just, that's, that's what the teaching is. That's what the advocacy is. It's how do you get people so excited about the technology? How do you get them to see what you see in it? When, and I mean, I am so excited about technology. I really, I'm like, I'm legitimately incredibly excited about where we are in the industry. We're at a time right now in user interface development where we're in the middle of another one of these paradigm shifts I didn't get a chance to talk about, which is completely functional and immutable user interfaces, which is more than just reactive user interfaces. Immutable user interfaces is a huge idea. And we're just caught, like, every, it seems like every two weeks somebody's got a great new way of thinking about how to build user interfaces on top of this, this shifting, this paradigm shift of this new way of thinking about UIs. Mm-hmm. And it's just an incredibly exciting time. And if you are excited about development, figure out how to externalize that. Figure out how to make people see the excitement that you see, because then, you know, then it's easy. Right? I mean, then they, they want to learn. You don't have to force them to learn. Right? They want to learn. They want to stay late and figure it out and, and, you know, because they know it will make their lives easier. And even if it doesn't make their lives easier, it will make their job more interesting. You know? and, and, uh, and in general, it does both. But that, that's kind of that, – that's, I think, why things have worked out well at Netflix for me. I got lucky. I got an incredibly great manager. Um, I mean, step one – I mean, the, the caveat here, guys, is that – you know, step one is is have a great manager, and that's that's not an easy thing to that's not an easy thing to do. To, to it's just, the good news is if you're a developer, this is just to at least some degree within your control. Because let's face it, we are in high demand, ladies and gentlemen. We as developers are in tremendous demand. If you don't like where you're working, there is very little excuse for you to continue working there, right? Mm-hmm. If you are even a slightly good programmer, you should have a huge amount of employment opportunity out there, right? This is an an economy, a technology economy. And there's no good excuse for you to work someplace that sucks. So don't, right? Go find a place and go find a great manager because it's, it's job one. And once you've got a great manager, then, you know, then definitely keep, keep working and improve your technical skills and in parallel, improve your organizational skills. Try and figure out how to externalize passion. Make it seen, right? Because if you can't communicate it, right, you're not going to have the impact. You're not going to be able to convince that even if you understand this cool technology, you're not going to be able to teach it and convince the other five guys and gals on your team to to start using it. So yeah, I think that's that's a lot of times one of the biggest problems for developers. Um and yeah, I've seen this over and over again even with myself and and is there I mean you say figure out how you can externalize it and get others excited about it. Do you have I don't know any any wisdom to share on on how to do that? Um you know this is an area where um I this one I feel as though I don't have as I don't have the same advice. I mean, frankly, my advice in terms of technical skills is surprise, surprise, read. You know, it's like we, there's the internet, right? Um, it's it's not hard to find incredibly rich resources for improving as a programmer. But what about improving as a teacher? And what about exactly, improving yeah. as an advocate? Yeah, I, I got to be honest with you. Um, that one came naturally to me eventually. And, and I think that's a terrible answer, right? Because the people out there want to know how to do it. And, and I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth because, uh, you know, my mother's a teacher. My mm. aunt is a teacher. My two uncles are teachers. Uh, this probably ran in my family, right? Mm-hmm. And so to some degree, I think that doesn't mean it can't be learned. Everything can be learned, right? Um, but I think it was more... Uh, finding the opportunity for this outlet. I, I, I firmly believe that if I wasn't a software developer, I, I probably would have been. I'd probably be teaching in some high school right now or maybe university. Uh, and so because I love teaching, uh, that's something that I get passion out of. And it's easy to do things you're passionate about. And so that's, you know, I, I, I cheated. I already loved <laughs> teaching. 
Uh, and so maybe learn to love teaching. You know, I, I think teaching is an incredibly satisfying pursuit. Uh, it really is. And, and I, some people, I don't know if everyone else sees it that way, but I mean, it, it is incredibly satisfying to me to teach somebody about software development. It's definitely, you know, alongside the technical, technical accomplishments in my career, um, which are modest compared to so many of my idols in, in this industry, right? Um, I see my biggest accomplishments and the things I look most fondly back on are the people who have taken my classes and who've given me, who've told me that, you know, it's, it's helped them. And, uh, we're at a time right now where like with code skills, so many people are getting into software development and, you know, I mean, you can have a huge impact if you teach people what you know, if you mentor, uh, people, I think it's, I think it's the most satisfying thing next to actually building, you know, beautiful, elegant programs that I, that I do in my career. And so, I like it, and so it was, it, I think it came more naturally to me. Um, but I know that there are people, even in my own family, who who learn public speaking. I know that uh, some people have done things like Toastmasters. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like a a um, a, a a group where people get together and they try to do public speaking. I think you cannot go wrong practicing public speaking. If being yeah. in front of a group of people makes you nervous, uh, you know, definitely. There's lots of opportunities there to improve that. Get really good at public speaking. That's at least job one, right? Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, part of the half of the confidence of public speaking is knowing your shit. Excuse my my French. It's knowing your shit. I mean, doing a lot of research and uh, and and really beefing up your technical skills will give you the confidence that if somebody raises their question and ask, you know, and ask something, that you can just knock that question out of the park, right? And so yeah, everything really flows, expert, of course. Yeah. From, I mean, it, everything flows from technical skill, right? There's no way you can just be a great public speaker. And, and I think, I mean, you may be able to make it for a short time in this industry just on the strength of presentation skills, but I think, you know, people, that, that doesn't last very long, right? Start with the technology, at least I did. Really feel like, because that's our core business area. Really get good at that. And when you start to feel confident there, right? Or in parallel, of course, build up your public speaking skills. Everything else, advocacy and teaching flows from the ability to be confident and comfortable speaking in front of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. Um, I I can definitely I can definitely echo uh, what you're saying about your students that come to you and say that you that that they um, learned a lot from you. Because um, I mean I can't say that because uh, I only saw a few videos of you uh, explaining, uh, for instance, reactive programming, and uh, but that they really helped. And uh, and uh, it was um, I was very very impressed with your ability to explain explain it. Um, Although I had really had to rewatch them a few times in order to uh, to grasp all the information that is in those videos, you put <laughs> you have a lot of information <laughs> into a, a short time, which, which is great though. And the videos are are uh, very helpful. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, ooh, I think we we arrived at at the um, at where we are right now um, in your career, right? Right. I, I think that that takes us up to present day. Uh, I think there's a little more, but I mean, I think I'm out of time, and uh, you know, I think I think that definitely covers the broad strokes. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, uh, so do you have to go right away? Um, I can maybe 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 three more minutes. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So do you? So do, I, I guess you prepared some picks. Do you want to go through the picks maybe quickly? Oh yeah, sure. Um, I would start by looking at uh, React. I mentioned I alluded to um, immutable user interfaces, and uh, I think React is, uh, although strictly speaking, it has nothing to do with immutable interfaces. I think uh, you're seeing a lot of 
this this trend in programming and user interfaces to building immutable UIs that are coming out of this community around React. Take a look at React. Take a look at Clojure. If you're a web developer, and I'm talking specifically to a web developer audience, mm-hmm. if you're if you're look at React, look at Clojure Script, which is a program, which is a, a Lisp programming language which compiles into JavaScript. There are incredibly important ideas about elegant design in Clojure and Clojure Script. Uh, and if you learn it, it helps us. It helps you build that set of values. I think if, if you if if you use that language for enough time, the values in that language seeps into the way that you think about programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Node.js, uh, you know, has a lot of great ideas in it, and it's a really exciting time uh, to be a JavaScript developer because you can do full stack JavaScript. Um, picks I've structure interpretation of computer programs, which I called out earlier. Uh, it's a great video, um, uh, a great video series from MIT. Uh, you can. You you can you know, sort of laugh at the hairstyles. It's back from back in the seventies, uh, but it's incredible that you know just like eight or nine of those videos cover problems that I'm still dealing with today, and they have great and elegant solutions for them. Um, and it also shows you the beauty of the, the Lisp programming language. Um, uh, circles, triangles, and squares. I think even though it's it's somewhat dated now, is still definitely worth a read. Um, simple made easy. Uh, it's very important for communicating with developers as you're trying so is the talk by Rich Hickey. Uh, simple made easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I think I think Rich <laughs> uh, Rich has a somewhat of a uh, uh, I, I think his ma- manner of delivering delivering information sometimes can be a little bit alienating. But uh, I, I definitely think you should push through. There's something really important that he talks about how to talk about the difference between simple and easy, and that's a very important tool when trying to explain your innovations to developers because sometimes developers they're resistant to innovation um, for the wrong reasons or at least for superficial reasons and you can help them if you can help them understand the difference between simple and easy or hard and complex respectively um, it can be easier to explain to them um, what the benefits and get them to see through the noise of the superficial and understand what's what's good about uh, one piece of technology or another it gives them the right way of evaluating technology Um, uh, let's see I would say those are probably my picks. Is there is there something else I should have? <laughs> that's uh, fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. So uh, so we we each also have one pick. So um, I'm just going to pick mine. I just want to pick Angular two and the um, Angular Connect conference. I have, I'm not there. It's happening right now, but they seem to be uh, having very interesting topics. Topics, and one of them is how they're uh, actually using the RxJS um, observable implementation in Angular 2, which is exciting because uh, we, we're going to use that at work as soon as it's stable. And uh, yeah, so definitely, so that's definitely a pick. I'm looking forward to the videos. Henning? All right. Uh, mine is just uh, Amazon Music uh, or Amazon Prime Music. I bumped into that a few days ago and had no idea it existed. And there's a few um, channels in there that have really good... Uh, instrumental music that you can work to and if you're a prime member then basically you already have it so that was that's my pick cool so uh where can the listeners find you online so far um is that like how can they contact you if they want to ask you questions um and, and twitter so is probably the best way to, to reach out to me it's a uh, uh, j hussein or that's j-h-u-s as in Sam, A-I-N, as in Nathan. I probably should have picked something in retrospect that was a little, a little more memorable, but there it is, Jay Hussein, uh, H-U-S-A-I-N. And um, the 
uh, I should also mention uh, because I'm, I'm terrible at marketing. I should I should also make a shameless plug for uh, the the reactive programming series that I just recently released on Fremen Masters. So if you want to, um, it's got like a full two days of videos where I talk in depth about reactive programming. So definitely, if you're interested in reactive programming uh, and observable, which is as you mentioned, is going to be an Angular two, definitely check that out. Cool. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit us up on a Slack chat. You can find that on the website as well or on descriptive pod on Twitter. Um, Jafar, thank you very much for your time. That was very, very awesome. Yes. Cool. Thank you very Thanks much for your time. Thanks for having me guys. It's been great.